everyone, and welcome to another episode of Rock and Retrospect. I'm your host, Nick Bambeck. I'm joined by two guests today. The first guest is a returning guest. He was on our second ever episode where we talked about Duran Duran, and I think he is the person that helped get them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. That's our good friend, John Lamro of the uh, Hustle Podcast. How's it going, John? Very good. Thank you for bringing me back. And I, this was, you and I did this, Nick. They have us to thank for being in the Rock Hall. Let's be honest about this. We did. I have the theory that someone listened and was like so enamored by our arguments and our take on the Duran Duran episode that we got them in the hall. Their first yeah. ballot, no less. Me too. I agree. And then we also have a second guest, and he's from the land out under, Australia. It's Hayden Murdoch. How's it going, Hayden? G'day, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I know you have um, a podcast, right? I do. Uh, my uh, partner and I, as in colleague in the podcast world, uh, B, we host a, a show called In Excess Access All Areas. Unfortunately, she's working today. It's uh, midday in Australia, roughly at this time. So uh, uh, money needs call, but I'm sneaking into the back office of my job uh, to represent the podcast and, and share some insights. Excellent. I'm so happy that you came on the show. And it's, I think, our first forte to Australia. So this is like, we're breaking ground 30-something episodes yeah. into rock and retrospect. Today we're discussing, I think, one of the best bands of the 1980s and who's someone who I think is very underrated that's in excess. And I know, of course, you have a podcast on in excess. So you were like an ideal guest. And I know John's a fan of the band as well. Uh, what was your first memory, Hayden, of in excess? Well, look, being from Australia and growing up here, we uh, were probably fortunate to see their first career, and that was their Australian career. Um, they've been a band that probably went on to have a, a US career, a, a UK, European career, and a South American career, all at different stages. But as a kid, sort of eight or nine years of age, they were, uh, and we did a lot of video shows in Australia before MTV. So we had shows like Countdown and Simon Townsend's Wonderworld, which was the show that first played at Inexcess Track. So probably being, you know, that vital youth and that age, uh, that was sort of uh, my early memories of seeing them on the TV, figuring their own style out in those days. I actually oh. have a question for you, Hayden, if you don't if you don't mind, Nick, I'm going to insert myself here a little bit because we have an in-excess expert and a peer and a colleague, so I have some questions too. Um, remind me where Dogs of Space work into the history. Is that... That was Michael's band before In Excess, or how does it work? What's no, it was Dogs in Space was a movie. Uh, I know that, but then wasn't it based on a real band, or am I wrong? Yeah, it was based on a punk band set in 1979. Uh, a guy called Sam, uh, the name the, the name escapes me, the surname, but uh, the movie was made in uh, January, February 1986, and it was really weird because that the week or two that they were filming that was the week that In Excess's What You Need became top five in America. Really? So Michael got a Way call off. while he's playing this sort of uh, 1970s punk rocker, you know, in these rat-infested homes in Melbourne filming it, and he got a call from Murphy and, and Andrew saying, hey, we're top five in America, and he found it hard to reconcile because that, yeah, happened on the uh, precipice of, you know, Listen Like Thieves and everything. So yeah. I'm so dumb. I thought that movie was made in the earlier 80s, pre-like big-time no. fame by then. Yeah, and so he, I he, and I thought it was I thought that was a real band that they were in, not just a movie band. Well, it was it's based on a real band, but uh, yes, yeah, set in the okay. 76, 77, 78, and um, okay. actually made in eighty six. Got it. Wow, very cool, Hayden. John, what was your first memory of In Excess? 
You know, I was trying to piece that together. It was a little bit of a few different things. Number one, the first thing I remember is seeing a video for the one thing on MTV. Um, that original, that first camera shot of the, you know, the them in the tuxedos and the food, and thinking the band was called Inks, and <laughs> um, and uh, and then I remember seeing pictures of them in Smash Hits magazine. Uh, whenever there was there was a brief period, I don't know, early '80s when I would occasionally stumble upon a Smash Hits magazine and they would be in it, but I never knew what the songs were that they were talking about. But I remembered, oh, Inks, that's that band that I remember the video from. But it was finally by the time What You Need got big that um, I, all those different, you know, I was able to connect all those various dots. Oh, this is the band from the four and so on and so on. And, and then, of course, you know, when Kick comes out, it changes everything. Absolutely. They became international superstars with Kick. Yeah. yeah. My first memory of NXS, because I'm relatively younger, I, I was born in 89. My dad loves NXS. That's one of his favorite bands, like 10 favorite bands. And we, he has all. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to actually tell you a really quick story. So what, when we recorded the Duran Duran episode last year, John, and I said, oh, yeah, I've recorded an episode of Duran Duran. You know what my dad's response was? Why don't you do an NXS episode? And I was like, what? And now it all comes all around. So I know he's yes. listening to this episode and he's Good. He, uh, laughing. I, but there is he, a song called All Around, uh, Nick. That's true. Oh, my God. <laughs> See, it's it's meant to be. It's meant to be. Wow. This is amazing. Uh, so he has all their albums, but the one that was always played the most was Kick and probably Listen Like Thieves. Those are the two that I feel like they were always yeah. played the most and Need You Tonight and new sensation and all those great songs and yeah so i feel like they've always been ever present in my life because my dad loves in excess have you guys ever seen them in concert look fortunately i have um uh it wasn't really till the x-factor tour i was uh doing my sort of final exams in year 12 and and probably didn't have the money or the uh the maturity to be allowed to go to concerts uh for the kick tour but i saw them on the x tour uh, I was fortunate enough to then sort of see them really on every tour thereafter, uh, and plus some of the JD Fortune tours and things as well. So I think all up was probably over twenty times. Yeah. Whoa! Wow, Whoa. twenty times. Yeah. that's a little in excess, don't you think? No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, some of the guests, like I will say, like we've had guests that seen the artist like forty times, fifty times, and sometimes hundreds of times. So it's so that's real dedication though. Yeah, Double digit numbers. Yeah, no, I was fortunate, very fortunate. Yeah. Oh, wow. John, have you seen them in concert? Yeah, I've only seen them once and it was shortly before Michael died. Actually, it was that oh. summer. Uh, they came through park city. I've always, I cannot, re- it was probably July, I think. And he died in November. Mm-hmm. And I've mentioned this before on my own show, Growing up in Salt Lake City, bands like NXS didn't come through very often. Um, They had once or twice before, but either I wasn't there or I couldn't go or whatever. So we just weren't a mainstay for big acts like NXS. But by that point, I hate to say it, they weren't the world beaters that they had been before. So Hmm. they did come through, put on a great show. Michael did seem a little, I don't know if out of it's the right word, because that would imply like he was on drugs or something. That's not what I mean. But it just, you sensed a little bit of exhaustion. It wasn't quite the same magnetic guy that you knew, you know, conquered the world just five, ten years earlier. The the, the only sort of real, genuine, professional footage of that 
era of elegantly wasted, there's a, a live concert at Lorelei in Germany. Mm. And uh, it's they played well, played live. You know, the songs are great, you know, songs, instrumentation, everything there. But, yeah, Michael, Michael's, you know, he's got the long black hair. He looks yep. pale, pasty, doesn't look as vibrant. Um, does a great show, but... Yeah, he's yeah. he's just a little bit off key, you know. Yeah, it Four feels like to come. agreed, and it feels mm. like he's aware that they aren't landing like they used to. And it's hard. Yeah, it is. So I did see a JD Fortune show. I don't really count that. You know, it just that, mm. no offense to every other member of NXS, but it still mm. felt a little bit like a covers band or something mm. like that. I think know? it's hard because he was such a distinctive lead singer that it's like, how do you replace? someone like that like it's almost like a one in a million kind of uh, talent in many ways so it's kind of hard because i'm trying to think of another band that they try to do it and you're like ooh, like i don't know like, well i can give you a, a, a local comparison we hear we heard a lot in the media over here when it happened and that's the acdc comparison yeah now obviously acdc when bond passed away in so eight, 1980 they were probably at an equivalent level of what you might think of, say, Listen Like Thieves. That is, that Highway to Hell come out. They had a hit with Highway to Hell. They were on the precipice. Now, back then, pre-MTV, ACDC, you know, were a radio band, not so much a, a visuals or MTV wasn't, MTV wasn't around. So the listening audience probably didn't really see much of a difference between uh, Brian Johnson taking over with Back in Black and Bon Scott because they weren't like MTV, Michael Hutchins' visual, you know, and I think that helped. Plus, ACDC were at a level of their career where they were halfway through, whereas for Inexcess, they are really on the back chapter when Michael passed. So you are really trying to, you know, replace uh, an apple with an orange, which just was never going to fly, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't have mattered. Wouldn't have mattered if George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr fronted the band. They still would have probably copped the backlash. Yeah, it reminds this replacement. Reminds me a little bit more of Genesis, you know, when Phil Collins left and they hired Ray, I think his last name was Smith. I can't remember. And they put out the Calling All Nations album, I think it was called. And it kind of, it bombed, unfortunately. And um, they just, that guy, that no-name guy was not going to be able to fill the shoes of Phil Hmm. Collins any more than JD is going to be able to fill Michael Hutchins. Now, I think the difference between Brian filling Bonds and these is that, well, number one, the songs were better, obviously, in Back in Black. And number two, I think, I think one, you probably needed some more time. And I think you probably need to, I was going to bring this up later, but I think you have to manage expectations differently. I mean, you could hang on to JD Fortune if you want, but you're going to play theaters to about 500 people. Is it worth it to you to keep NXS going and do it that way and hope for the best? Or are you, is that just not good enough and not worth the effort? And that's the question that bands like NXS have to ask each other. And they decided it wasn't, you know? And so, which is interesting because then Gary goes off or John or Andrew and form their own bands and they're playing to even smaller groups, but I'm sure they're so rich and, you know, no famous that they, it doesn't matter to them. It's just an outlet for fun and creativity. I'm, I'm yeah. assuming anyway. Yeah, I think you make some good points. I think the earlier things about Genesis, well, it's interesting, you know, you, you had an earlier replacement of a lead singer and that was Peter Gabriel going and then they internally replaced the singer by pulling the drummer out and letting him sing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, it, 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 I think uh, there's a certain sort of zeitgeist where ACDs were at that point where what's next, what's coming, and the songs were great, Mutt Lang, everything with the album. They weren't a visual band, and music wasn't visual then, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, as I said, there's, there's almost the similarity of Bon and Brian for the naked ear in America who didn't quite associate the lead singer with the band. And they they also had this other thing. They had a seven, second rock star. They had Angus. Yeah, <laughs> and I think point. unfortunately with Michael and in excess, the five other band members we know them to be valuable, but they didn't have you know An- Andrew, who you've interviewed, John, is shy and reserved and things like that, and he's not the flamboyant out there guy. Mm. Like if, if God forbid, if Mick Jagger died, you still got Keith. You know, if Bono goes, right. you got Edge. If you've got Ace, if you've got bon- Brian Johnson who went off, they still had Angus and sold yeah. tickets even without yeah. Brian. You know. That is a genius point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Yeah. There is no second banana in, yeah. in excess that might still compel yeah. people to come and see them. I hadn't you thought could about argue that. You could argue that Angus really is ACDC yeah. over the journey. You're exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. See, we so make true. excellent points on this podcast already, and it's, it's like 10 genius. minutes in. <laughs> so we say. <laughs> so we say. Uh, so just to take a step back, I just want to ask Hayden, uh, especially what makes you a fan of in excess's music like what like what defines this band to help you say like i this I is think, one of my um, favorites yeah yeah thank you um michael articulated this really well um australian radio for many years uh bucked the trend of what seemed to happen in america and we weren't we're not formatted stations here there are certain radio stations in in australia up until maybe the last 10 years where um, you could listen, as Michael said, to Led Zeppelin and Aretha Franklin on the same dial mm-hmm. and or Metallica and, and the Beatles on the same radio station. We don't format things into classic rock, country, soul, R&B. We had a, a you know smaller country. We had less radio stations, so there was an aggregation of music on the same channel. And I think within excess, they sort of were the sum of their parts, and it's probably the, the hidden genius of why I'd love them is that they can do, you know, soul like a never tear us apart. They can do a, a blues thing like a, you know, a, a, a mystify. They can do a, um, a, a Motown type backbeat of a disappear. Uh, they can do a funk of what you need. They can do a heavy rock, you know, in some of their sort of louder tracks and things. So stylistically, they were sort of uh, encompassing all, frag- all, all factions of music that I liked. And they used to get... I guess lambasted from the record companies and different people going, you just you're going too many different areas. Especially with the kick album, that was sort of declined by Doug Morris at uh, Atlantic saying, here's a million to go re-record it. If you actually take away the commerciality of kick and for a moment just look at the album, Mediate's a very weird song, you know. <laughs> Guns is. of the Sky is an opener, it's a bit of a weird song, you know. Um uh, Mystify, you know, coming then into Never Tear Us Apart, Need You Tonight, it's a very weird song. They are quite weird, but they sort of so used to familiar in our ears, we see them as quite commercially, you know, sort of sounding. But um, they take a lot of left and right hand turns on things that probably, you know, represent music overall. So, you know, I love Aretha Frank, I like Led Zeppelin, I like Metallica. So in excess, you know, try and incorporate a, a blend and amalgam of styles that I think until bands like, the Killers and and um, the Bravery and uh, Franz Ferdinand came around in the mid-2000s, you know, that was suddenly deemed to be acceptable. You could do dance rock and go down a few different angles. So I think that's part of their legacy that's underrated. Yeah, their versatility is, uh, I think, when they're strong suits. Like, they could kind of do all these different styles and still be successful and 
I think that's a testament to them. And I know we're going to talk about this later. They're one of the few bands I could think of offhand that they could play on classic rock and new wave alternative stations and you wouldn't think twice. And they have at least, I would say, double digit number of songs that you could easily play. And you're like, oh, yeah, like that's a great song. That's a great song. And, and they all sound so different. Like a lot of them. Like, yeah. Even I mean, like you get surprised and. Yes, sorry, sorry. We we get a lot of people in Australia, you know, who who love in excess still and everything there. But sometimes there's songs on there. You look at a song like "To Look at You" off uh, Shabu Shaba, which is a real sort of deep dive fan favorite. It, it's a very new romantic sound, but it doesn't sound like in excess. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people out there go, "I know that song. I know that song." I mean, David Wild may have been on, I think, might have been on the Rock Solid podcast, and he said, "I think." Um, uh, uh, you know, that um, name escapes me, the fantastic host of Rock Solid, John. Um, uh, Pat, Francis. Pat Francis. Pat Francis, yeah. Yeah, he, he said that they, they brought up in excess. He goes, yeah, the one thing with in excess is a really deep catalogue. they got like 20, 30 songs that is really underrated. And I, but that's what I've, I've found a little bit sort of mind-numbing is that they've actually had 18, 19 top 40, 100 hits in America. Mm-hmm. But there's another 30 in Australia and other regions around the world. They've had 50 sort of top 40 hits across the planet. And they've, they've serviced 50 countries and there are hits in songs and countries which go back to their greatest hits that weren't hits in other countries where, you know, I think uh, back to ACDC and we, we did an episode on, we love ACDC down here, but I guarantee if you straw poll the average guy in the, in the, in the, uh, the, on the planet, they'll name you seven or eight ACDC songs. Mm-hmm. I guarantee the average fan won't know 20. I feel like yeah. personally, yeah. like for me, like in this decade, the only band that rivals them in terms of the number of songs that like you could think of like this is U2. And and, yeah. and they were kind of like the rivals in many ways, even though Bono and Michael Hutchins were like best friends in yeah, real right. life yeah. too. But I feel like they were like almost like the top two bands in terms of international success even beyond America and Europe. And yeah, you're absolutely right, Aiden. You may have seen this, John, is that it, singles from bands up until maybe the late 70s, early 80s were always deemed a bit of a sellout. A lot of bands wanted to release albums. Like Led Zeppelin's great songs weren't singles, mm-hmm. but they're <laughs> iconic. Um, back in the early 80s, you know, the, the, the record company saw singles as a way of advertising albums. That's what singles really are, what songs are going to get on radio. So you, you two and excess were part of that era where you put out four, five, six singles per album. And they would chart depending on the country or the countries that, you know, maybe appealed to certain singles. So it's interesting, you know, an album like Kick probably had, you know, five or six singles on it, four were released in America, five or six were released elsewhere. So, um, you know, uh, Welcome to Wherever You Are, you had Not Enough Time was the lead single in America, hit 28, but it was a B-side in Australia. You know, it's, it's weird how they did that, you know? Yeah. I have a question for you, Hayden. Um, is there, you would know better than we would, is there, are there... Is is there anyone out there in Australia, I would assume, who lost interest in in excess once they became popular? Is there anyone out there who's like, you know what? I like the first two in excess albums. After that, they lost me because those well, first two albums felt like a completely different band. Mm-hmm. So you talk about the first two, like it's yeah, the names in yeah, excess and underneath and, and the colors. Under the uh, look, I think there's there's probably more a shift where you've got the old rank and file. You know, I'm a Shabu Shabar, the swing guy, you know, and mm-hmm. and then when they did the Chris Thomas years, the triumvirate of, uh, of listening like these kicking X, 
that was their international coming out, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I think you probably, you know, the first two albums were what they would probably call their sophomore years, you know, just figuring yeah. a sound out. I think when Mark Opitz came in Shabu Shabar, that was the takeoff moment where everybody started to embrace them and they found their sexy, suave side and their funky side and yeah. the bigger sound. Yeah. So there's there's not so much a backlash on the first two. I think there are people who go who are who grew up and really love Shabu Shabar and the swing. And we all know when a, a band starts to make it internationally. Me, I fell on the side of proud, fantastic, Crocodile Dundee, we won the America's Cup, Greg Norman. You know, we, we were part of this Australian invasion overseas, men at work, you know, that were going global and we were not Austria, we were Australia. We were, <laughs> we don't ride kangaroos down the main street and all this sort of cliche. Um, so Nexus were really part of that 80s explosion. Um but there's always those people who always feel like when a band transcends international borders that, oh, they've, 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 they've gone from this cult sort of they're my secret, now they're the world's oyster, you know. They sold and, out. Yeah, so. and they haven't really. They've just found a bigger audience. We all know right. that. Um, yeah. But I think the larger majority of people were very proud of them here because the toil and they knew their journey of what they did to a certain degree to make it out of Australia to begin with and to then sort of climb where they were. And we've always... You know, even Canada, Canadian bands, you'd know this, John, and probably Nick as well, they've struggled to transcend down into America, you know, in terms of that distance and travel. And yet they're, you know, they're just a few feet away. Yeah. And for some reason, people think Canadian bands won't translate to America. Yeah. How, and they work hard the too. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's so weird to me. We did yeah. an episode on the Tragically Hip with John Mudford and Josh uh, Fitzgerald, and that's a band that's like distinctively Canadian, but didn't really transcend to America. And it's like weird because you could think to yourself, like a lot of their songs could easily play on yeah, alternative right. radio, but it didn't translate for them for some reason. So it's so strange sometimes how it works for certain artists and then some. Yeah. It, yeah. Like it accepts. I think it's they like just, I think they time. just were prepared to do the miles. I think, yeah, you know, that's probably um, it. That's they just, they just did the miles. They just serviced it. And it's a bit different these days with, you know, digital platforms and things, but they just played and played and played, and I think that was just sort of the the, the impetus, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I mean, something you said too, Hayden, that um, is interesting about them is that they are a very visual band. So I think them coming right at the uh, beginning of especially MTV really helps them because especially Michael, like performing on stage, like the camera loves him, and mm-hmm. it's just – he's just magnetic to yeah. the audience. And like you can't help but not – watch him and i think part of it is almost like duran duran it's like they came at the right place the right time and Mm -hmm. that they just made a lot of great pop songs yeah that's right and uh you know the look i I guess everything generationally changes we may talk about this a little bit later when we hit the 90s but you know the 70s sort of a new decade it's interesting how things move and that mtv late 81 early 82 was a, a pivotal time for a lot of bands but I think they weren't stuck in that. They were able to sort of get through that era. There's a lot of, you know, bands maybe like a Flock of Seagulls and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. ABC and that were really caught up in 81 to 84 but never really could play live to the level and did the yards and had substance, you know. Um, yeah. And no criticism to them but, you, you know, you had to be able to play live, I think, to survive longer as any type of band, you know. Mm-hmm. You actually, if I could piggyback on that comment, this maybe I'm jumping the gun on this, Nick, I'm just going to. Go for it anyway. You actually said something in your intro that makes me bristle a little bit when other people say it and they refer to them as an 80s band. Because to me, they were, I I feel like that's 
a severely unfair criticism. Not that you were making this criticism. Oh, I'm sure yeah. you meant they were one of the biggest bands of the 80s, which they were. Yeah. Now, yeah you did mention 90s as well, but I do agree yes, with what you're saying, true. John. Yeah, yeah. I feel like critically, too many people box them in as an 80s band, as something yeah. that could not like Flock of Seagulls or, you know, to some degree, Duran Duran, a band of its time that made sense in the 80s that isn't necessarily timeless. And yeah. I couldn't disagree more about a, a, a label like that on a band like Inexcess. Well, to me, whatever Inexcess is yeah. doing is the most timeless rock and roll there is. Yes. And so well, I, I bristle yeah. whenever anyone says that. Or well, it, it was probably... Part there's, there's there's a couple of things that motivate me to start the podcast, and I and I without um uh you know uh sycophantically praising you, John, I, I must say yourself and, and probably Pat Francis, um, you know, really motivated me to think that I could do a podcast. And I I do want to say really a genuine thank you to you because you, you the way you do your podcast and the way you honestly share, you know, I hope people are listening to this and show vulnerability made me feel like that. Hey, it's okay if I put it out there and I only get X amount of listeners because it serves a, a need. And, you know, it gave me a sense of belief that it could happen. And um, uh, so I thank you for that. And, again, I, I really, you know, thank you for the, almost the mentorship and guidance you've showed me. Like you, I put in a mission statement at the start of every episode because I you, you, you suggested, you know. Yeah, and I so things like that are really helpful. Secondly, I, I also thought that as much as I loved In Excess and things like that, I felt like the podcast out there just seemed to represent kick and, I felt like it was just not doing a legacy to the band's catalogue. Um, I felt like that uh, it's lazy journalism for a lot of scribes to turn around and just say, oh, 80s band or whatever. So part of the the the, the podcast series is to do a sort of a, an A to Z chronological process of 1977 to 2012 and beyond of their recording, releasing, live, whatever career, and have it as a time capsule. Uh, because, you know, if we look at 1990, well, you know, they had two or three top ten hits in America. That's 1990. 91, they sold out Wembley. 1991, they had a platinum live album in America and they had number one album in the UK in 92 with Welcome. You know, they, up until 94, were really a, a significant player in the world's space. Did sales drop off and things decline after that? Absolutely. But, you know, if TV shows and, and movies now are using their material all the time, a bit like Kate Bush this week, she's getting a lot of recognition for running up that hill, a 1985 song that was a middling hit. Well, great music is getting a rebirth in a lot of TV shows now and, and movies because it is timeless. And where are the rock bands now? You know, you know the, the Slits, the Greta Van Fleet, or whatever. But you know, unfortunately, rock is becoming almost a relic, and yeah. they are going back to go forward. Um, but maybe appreciation comes in time. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So. And I did mean that too, by the way, John, like one of the biggest bands of the 80s. <laughs> I know 90s. you did. <laughs> yeah. We would never want to be. No, I know. I wasn't saying you say that, but I, some people do yes. categorize them that way. And I just have to put a stop to it because it, I feel passionately against it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because I think a lot of times it's like he's like paid and said lazy journalism, but it's also, it's a lot of people tend to try to put people into certain genres or certain like characteristics or you know what I mean and like it annoys me too because it's like we did an episode on Kate Bush she's impossible to actually categorize and like yeah. she's just a, a, a an originator and like a trendsetter yes. and an iconolast yes. like it's hard like that's how I feel about an excess in a weird way it's like they just feel like a band that 
there's no one that sounds like them. They have a distinctive sound, but also yeah. even the way they write songs. And I think that's what I want to talk to you guys about later in the episodes, their songwriting, which I think their process is absolutely fascinating and they don't get enough um, credit for that. I did want to talk about the band's formation to move to talk about like the history of the band. Uh, they formed in 1977 in Sydney, New South Wales, in Australia, right? Right, yeah. even? Okay. Yeah. And then the, uh, and then can you tell us a little bit about like how the band got together? Because I feel like you could contextualize yeah. it way better than I ever could. That's fine. Yeah, for sure. Look, um, Gary Beers uh, posted yesterday on Facebook. He actually went to the Palladium, I think, in LA. He went to see Midnight All there. And he was with, I think, Toby Ran uh, from his band and things. But um, they basically, along with Midnight Oil, started from the northern beaches of Sydney and supported Midnight Oil on a, on a few gigs. They were called the Farris Brothers. Uh, the ex-manager of Midnight Oil uh, saw an ad on TV for IXL Jam. And he sort of played around with the logo and he thought of the XTC band and then IXL and then came up with this sort of stoner-type creative genius idea of InXS. And if we think back to that era, you had REM and U2 and InXS and XTC, often for posters and for branding and badges and flies on cars to go to our gigs. Having a snappy acronym-type band notion, uh, OMD, whatever's another one, were very uh, in at that time. And... Uh, yeah, so they they sort of from seventy seven to eighty did a lot of touring. They did a lot of the outback, you know, mines and 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 really roughed and tumbled it. And it was only it was three years into that time they then went and recorded. So they'd sort of honed seven eight hundred gigs before they did their first album uh, in those early days. I got to say one thing, Hayden. I was going to bring this up. In high school, it was one of my favorite discoveries that if you wrote the letters in excess in kind of box letters on top of each other looks like a union jack and so I, okay. I, used to, I used to put that on my notebooks you know i, I write in excess. the call yeah yeah and then you write in excess if you try it sometime in box letters and you come out with the union jack and i was always yeah. so proud of myself for figuring yeah but you know i know kirk who we interviewed he said look you know back in the early days and i put flies on cars in the area about a gig coming up, you know, having a snappy sort of punchy name uh, that was easy, uh, well, easy to write, but people equally were like inks, 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 you know, um, uh, became one of those things, yeah. Yeah. Now, I have a question for you. So they formed the band essentially because Andrew Ferris and Michael Hutchins were friends in high school. But then to clarify, did they have two different bands or did another yeah, band the, absorb yeah, into there was that? A band, there's a band, Dr. Dolphin, which uh, a couple of the, the band members are in, and then Andrew and uh, uh, Michael became friends over an altercation at school and Andrew wrote poetry. and Sorry, Michael wrote poetry and Andrew was sort of quite besotted by this kid who just come back from Hong Kong for a couple of years and um, and they sort of joined forces, I guess, in terms of because of the three brothers and uh, I think, uh, you know, obviously in the family, they would play and practice in the garage and then one day Michael, who was friends with Andrew, they said, why don't you get up and sing, um, of which that happened and then they got Gary in a little bit later because he was one year older and had the van, uh, had, mm-hmm. had the van to be able to take the equipment and he, could, he learned bass. Um, so it was sort of quite an organic thing, three brothers and sort of three friends. Tim and Tim and Kirk were, were were good buddies and friends in science class, and I think one I think Tim had walked past or Kirk had walked past and seen Tim drawing a guitar on his pencil case, and that struck up a conversation, to which uh, led to music. So 
Um, but yeah, they're all sort of pretty much t- together there. And um, we just recently did a little two-year anniversary of our podcast, and we did a Northern Beaches trip up the coast, and we went to the, where their high school was. We went to the house where the Ferris brothers uh, grew up and rehearsed. We knocked on the door, and the lady had COVID. She couldn't let us in. She's like, oh, it's so great. And we had 20, 30 people on the lawn out the front saying hello. That's we went great. to where they we That's went awesome. to where they filmed the film clip for Stay Young on the beach, and we've we've got a video coming out. We've got it all filmed. We'll send it out to you. But oh, please, we did a, be told we me did a retrospective. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's Good. incredible. Oh, so I had a question for you, Hayden, because I did. I've always been curious. How did they get the deep in excess? Well, uh, yeah. Look, as I said, the uh, the manager of Midnight Oil, who was going through a bit of a religious sort of. Uh, 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 sort of, uh, you know, awareness or awakening um, was, you know, partaking in a few of the medicinal sort of Bill Maher substances, you know, uh, and uh, he was seeing it out on TV, which was a jam ad, and then he he liked XTC and then IXL, and then he he formulated just just this composite of initials and sketches, maybe a bit like John's Union Jack, <laughs> and then came up with an excess uh, instead of the Ferris Brothers. So that that was sort of the sort of the genesis there. That's very interesting because I I had a friend. This is really funny. When it was they were playing on the car about oh my god, like 10, 12 years ago, he thought it, he spelled it out like N I X S, and I'm like, it's in excess. Like why? Like why would you think that? He was saying like, oh, it's like R E M, and I'm like, no, it's like you, well, it, it means it's, like it's really funny. Say R E M. Yeah, there's a, there's a lovely tribute for Michael Stipe to Michael and the band about three years ago. Mike, Michael Stipe, I think he's in England promoting the greatest hits or the 30th anniversary of something. And he was talking a bit about Michael Hutchinson in the interview. And it goes for about 90 seconds. And he said, oh, I learned a lot from Michael, his vocal technique. You know, he was more daring than people gave him credit for, you know, and, and Stipe himself was saying about Hutchinson. He said, look, a song like Strange Currencies, there's a middle eight in that I took straight off at NXS song, the way you do your middle eights. And then the vocal daringness to go soulful was something I never tried, but Michael would do things like that. And I think Michael suffered a little bit from the Brad Pitt syndrome. I think people these days realise Brad Pitt's a great actor, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and he got his Academy Award for, you know, the the, the Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. But I think Michael suffered a bit. And I remember this horrible review one time that a, a very sarcastic journalist said in the year 2000, he said, oh, yeah, Michael's sort of the Keanu Reeves of rock and roll, sort of the movie hero we need but not quite a great actor or mm. whatever. And it really bristled me. Um, me and if Michael if Michael looked a little bit like, um, um, you know, uh, Mick Jones from The Clash, they probably would have had more street cred. Oh. You know what I mean? I, everything you're saying I do not understand. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Michael is – the top, in the top three greatest front men of all time, Freddie Mercury, Mick Jagger, and Michael Hutchins. I don't think that's even arguable. And, mm. and I, this is going back to what I was saying earlier. I feel like they get knocked down a peg or two because what they do seems almost effortless. If it was that easy to write rock songs that are poppy and funky and dancey, everyone would do it. And they don't. And yet, In Excess can do it every time out on every album, every yeah. song. Do you know how Im- how impossible that is? You know, it just it chaps my hide so greatly. This is not some flash in the pan, some you know yeah. stuck I, to I one think- genre. This, they are <laughs> they are eternal, and it and it drives me nuts that nobody can see that. 
Ricky Gervais, one of my heroes uh, in the show Extras, was had that famous episode with David Bowie. And, uh, you know, little fat man. <laughs> uh, anyway, he he was saying, you know, in pre-production about writing a song and, you know, uh, Ricky says to, to David, oh, if you could do something like A Life in Mars, you know, Starman, blah, blah. He goes, yeah, right. F and L. Yeah, that's all right, Ricky. I'll just go off in two hours and write another Life in Mars. Yeah, right. Good on you. <laughs> he, he put he put songwriting in perspective with that comment. Yeah, I'll just roll one of those down for you the next hour. No problems. I'll do it over lunch. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. So it's not easy. Yeah. No. No, not at all. So when did In Excess start playing their first shows, Eden? Oh, look, I think that the famous one is that uh, on uh, Tim's twenty first. Oh, Tim's. Tim's 20, it might have been 21st that they were at, um, but it was on Tim's birthday. He might have been 19 or 20 himself. They did a sort of a gig for friends and family and a few different things there. But I'd probably say towards late as 77, 78 is when they got out and just started as the Ferris Brothers and playing. They played, you know, their own stuff, and then they played everything from, you know, Roxy Music to the Doobie Brothers, to, uh, I think Miss Shapiro. You know, they, they did quite a few covers, and there's a, there's a good compilation album called Stay Young where it records a bunch of stuff live they did in that day that paid homage to sort of influences plus their own material. And then they got their first record deal in 1980, right, with Deluxe? Yeah, with an album, a label called Deluxe. I think a gentleman there by Michael Browning uh, was involved with that label uh, there, and... Um, they had, uh, you know, I think 10, 11 track debut, I think 10 track debut album. a strong release, very sort of, uh, it's got a very British sort of scar, you know, Most madness. Kind of yeah, they're, they're, fine. they're figuring their sand out and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's a very much a sort of a, you know, a, a freshman type, uh, if I can use an American term, a freshman type approach. And mm-hmm. uh, then they've, they, you know, literally a year later, and, you know, it was like in those days, John Bands are going every nine, 12 months and, do another album, but you know the L and they record them a lot of them overnight whilst touring and things. Um, but you know, I think it was just uh, you know with Chris who got involved with the band, you know, in around 1982, I think or 81, 82 there, and then decided to get them to WA WEA or Warners. Mm-hmm. and got Mark Opitz in, which literally just to do one song or one or two songs that was the one thing, and then it led to uh, I think Johnson's Aeroplane and one or two others. They were like, why don't you do the album? And then, you know, Don't Change came to look at you. All these other ones came in. So it was a bit of a game changer, that album there. And 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 they did something that the Aussie bands didn't do there. We have bands like the Angels and and probably even Icehouse then to a lesser degree and Hoodoo Gurus and Midnight All, but they decided to bunker up and go to America and just tour it and hence the uh, go to the US, big the big festival there. They got a, got a, a Guernsey there in 83 there. The, that Wozniak festival he put together us, with others, us, us festival. Yeah, they were on one of the days. There, there was a metal day on day two. There, there was a pop uh, new wave band on one day and then rock bands on another. But that was significant. And I think something I want to just contextualize for a second with this band at this moment in time is that they're all like teenagers. Like they're 19, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. Yeah. So they, they're very young too. Even like their first few albums, which were... I think we'll we'll be honest. Like they were just kind of developing their sound. They weren't really yeah. that big of successes. But these are no. very young guys to do what they were doing. So I give them a lot of credit for that. And I think that's something that I well, think you're right. You, it's a really good point. I mean, you, you you know, let's let's look at the third album. Okay, so you got uh, let's let's look at the three big 
big known songs off that, which is The One Thing Don't Change and To Look At You, and probably Black and White was a, a fourth hit down here. Uh, Michael was 21. Uh, the album got released, I think, when in his 22nd year, uh, and Andrew was 22, turning 23. Uh, Gar- uh, John was nine, uh, was 20, uh, turning 21. I mean, there are boy bands that are 29 years old, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> acting like they're 18. So you're right, they are young. Even in the kick era, you know, they were 26, 27, you know, when that broke. So, you know, the a bit like the Beatles in a way, I'm not trying to compare them, but the amount of material that between sort of 82 and 87 they came up with that in those young years was pretty impressive, especially when you add in the burden of touring because that can be a real creative uh, drainer for, for the artistic, you know, drive. But, you know, they were young and they were living together. And I think if you look at the credits on their albums, you can tell when they stopped living with each other because you then saw co-writes that didn't exist anymore. Mm. Around Listen Like Thieves time, it became more of a, a Michael Andrew partnership because mm. they weren't living together anymore. Fascinating. That is. I was curious. Um, I had a question for you too, Hayden. We're just going to ask all our Australian questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You. I, I've always felt like bands like In Excess, Midnight Oil, you mentioned Hoodoo oh. Gurus, even Pseudo Echo to some degree. There are Australian bands that have a knack for this kind of, like we were saying, rock, pop, but with some grit. And they have a, they have a, an attention to the grit that America doesn't have. And certainly yeah. the UK doesn't have. Yeah. And I, and angels are like that cold chisel to some degree. Oh, 100%. What is it that, where does that come from? And, and are we, am I, am I, am I hearing correctly? I mean, do you guys know that that's, a part of Australian well, rock and roll? It's, it's a simple thing. If you can't play it live, you're not rated. Mm. You know, we're not into, we've, never, we've been a country that was built and we still are on pubs. You know, we're, we're, we're convicts from the descent in English days. Yeah. So the local pub at the end of the street or the pub culture probably emanate from the English roots. Yeah. But to for bands to succeed, and, and back in the non-internet days and mobile phone and social media and, and Minecraft days, you're 18, yeah, you know, if you were 16, 17, 18, you try to get to the pub, have a beer and see a band. And bands would play six, seven, eight nights a week. Bands would, like in excess, would play nine concerts a week because they'd play two in one night. Mm. So it was the entertainment principle of things. And if you couldn't get up and play your guitar and play your instruments, you know, people would boo you down and they'd throw things at you. <laughs> mm. um, and the miniseries is even excess playing in front of um, outback areas. I mean, we're, we're a tough critic or a tough audience here. Mm. You know, that's probably where that comes from. So you've got to be the real deal. Mm. Um, the difference why, and, and I think the melody and the ability to play rock in different styles comes from the influences of less radio stations and, and more content of a variety on each station. So a band like Chisel or Pseudo Echo or Phoenix, there are other bands similarly would do a ballad, a rock, a, a, you know, a Motown, a, a, a blues track, a soul track, a metal track or whatever it might be. They had that variety because of the radio, less stations, and you'd hear more. We'd, we'd, we'd get everything here from America and England. Yeah, but it'd be all on the same stations. Yeah, it's it funny. Just seems like none of those bands I listed, Hunters and Collectors, is another one. Yeah. None of those bands could have come from anywhere but Australia for whatever. Yeah, reason. I just and, wonder and, what's and, in the and, water that makes. Yeah, sense. and look, some of the bands didn't transcend overseas. They went over like Hunters and Collectors and Chisel and things because maybe there was an idiosyncratic nature of things being a little bit too Australian in their lyrics, mm. a little bit too Australian in in their messaging and things and. You know, we've got our own version of, of Bob Dylan here, a guy called Paul Kelly. I love now, Paul Kelly. Now, Paul Kelly 
has a song here in Australia that maybe your listeners can download. It's called How to Make Gravy. <laughs> I love that. Right. Yeah. Now, this is a song about a guy in jail, you know, and he's ringing his family about he's going to be stuck in jail for Christmas. This is a lyric to die for. You know, Bob Dylan would curl over in his future grave if he heard it, but this song transcends everything, and, and it should have been a global hit. Um, but sometimes certain songs and tones of voice are a bit idiosyncratic to us, but I also think a good song is a good song, and if you go sell it door-to-door often enough, mm-hmm. you can tear down the barriers a little bit. And I think that's why there was a huge pride in me with excess because I felt like they just did that extra bit that other bands weren't prepared to do. They never got anything easy. You know, I had to tour every album. The one album they didn't tour well me wherever you are, all right, I did four million, but it was probably their Acton baby, but didn't quite get the the commercial. And this is an interesting thing. You know, NXS's later albums, you could argue, are more artistically creative and credible than maybe some of their highest selling albums. And this is an interesting argument when it comes to bands and things. The Beatles were lucky they they brought out, you know, Sgt. Pepper's The White Album and Abbey Road and Let It Be after they stopped touring, but they they were in that zeitgeist, and NXS never got that second bite of the cherry in the zeitgeist. Green Day got Dookie, and then Green Day got, you know, American Idiot in the zeitgeist. You two got Joshua Tree, and then they got Acton Baby in the second zeitgeist. You know, the Chili Peppers, they got, you know, um, you know Californication, then they got uh, uh, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic. Yeah, Blood Sex Sugar Magic, you know. Yeah. You know, they got the two in the zeitgeist, you know. Again, and, so true. And, and, and I said this to Andrew in our interview, and, and he was sort of, sort of almost apologising to me that I felt that way. And I said, no, it's just I always felt, you know, that um, part of our sort of subtle push or direct push is that I think even if NXS had some American passports or, a little, you know, a little more locally, um, if, they, if they probably, I mean, Duran Duran are playing the game. They, 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 to their credit, they're releasing material. They've got a live band. They've got most of their original members now. Um, they, they inducted Roxy Music. They're playing the Hall of Fame game, and that's all helping. But, you know, there's not a cheerleader in America for them. As you say that, I'm watching. It's funny that you say it because I actually wore the 2019 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, induction ceremony shirt because that's where Duran Duran uh, inducted Rock's music as a tribute to John because we got them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, We did. It was on us. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, these things have to have an impetus. Yeah, they do. And and I and I believe you know people go back. Well, it's politicking behind the scenes with that, but I have no doubt, John, what you've done with Duran Duran and other artists and giving attention. I mean, you know, look at a Go-Go's documentary, some of the year later they're in, you know, Joan Jett, yeah. who really has never really released one hit single that she wrote. They're all covers. Mm-hmm. You know, they had, you know, documentaries on them and, you know, movies come out. I mean, it just starts with a bit of a voice and a conversation and it does. you know what it's like. It's very politicky, but, yep. you know, if we can arouse attention, that's our... That's it. That's a sub job, I guess, of that podcast. Here's the thing, though, Aiden. You need to sometimes give people reminders of why these people are special. It's not that, like, because some people say, oh, it's like a cheap way to get an induction or a nomination. I think it's fair game because sometimes you don't think about, say, the Go-Go. So they're a perfect example. Like, you haven't really heard any Go-Go's music in how many years, but that documentary came out and it kind of gave this critical reappraisal of their work yeah. and then it led to them getting into the rock hall and also they were very big like critics of the rock hall like they weren't in because they were eligible i think for 15 years or so uh before yeah, they got I, in i remember that fantastic movie the wedding singer 
Mm-hmm. It was that the is first a great time, movie. <laughs> it was the first time, you know, well, you know, anytime someone says, stop wearing my Van Halen t-shirt, you'll jinx the band. You know, <laughs> you know, it was a movie that, you know what, when we saw it in 97, we were able to laugh at the 90s. We had enough time to get over them, or the 80s, I should say, a bit of time to get over them and reappreciate from what they were. And sometimes music's a bit like that. You know, the grunge movement probably heard in excess, you know, the Britpop movement, things move on and, and everyone gets older. People have babies, get jobs, they stop buying tickets, they stop being fans. You know this, John, through various artists and things you've, you've interviewed who, you know, I, I really love your interview with John Waite, um, who's one of the great voices in rock. But, you know, you hear him, he's, so, he's not dismissive of Is It A Time or Missing You, but he's so into these other songs and he feels creatively like they, they represent him now. And I think sometimes, the, you know, true fans support and listen to everything throughout and fickle fans go, oh, yeah, they're not as good as the old days, but they probably haven't listened to the new days. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's a shame that the Mystify documentary didn't have that effect or maybe it still will. I don't know. See, yeah. here's the thing. Too. I think it could because, like, even the Nina Simone documentary, that was three or four years before she got inducted into the mm-hmm. Rock Hall. And someone was on the committee that actually wrote the book that was the basis for yeah. that. So sometimes yeah. things take a little bit of time. But I think also, like, Duran Duran and Depeche Mode and The Cure, they, had all, they all kind of have to get in, too, mm-hmm. before someone like In Excess, mm-hmm. who I think we'll talk about this much later, like they're in the conversation now. Like there's almost like I think the other. I think order. the I think the the uh, part of you know that getting too subtext or whatever. But you know, Duran Duran, Depeche Mode, uh, are genre bands to a certain degree. If you you, you know, that Depeche Mode represent. Oh, we've got to get a dance um, techno sort of type of thing in. You know, the uh, the push to get in um, every things every year for Shaka Khan or Tina Turner. There's this push to get certain genres in. Nine Inch Nails or, you know, let's get a, that band in or we need to get a 70s band in. They, they really are, it's very much like um, that's the push. In excess of this weird, weird creature that aren't sort of 80s, aren't 90s, aren't 70s, there's this amalgam of styles and they, I think there's a confusion. <laughs> they, remind, anything can, yeah. they remind me of Sorry. Billy Idol in a weird way, like they're in a, in a strange way because they're both like classic rock new wave alternative, like you don't know how to pigeonhole, but they also have that longevity too. I always see that similarity, at least between Idol and In Excess, which I don't know, maybe I'm like way off the mark. I can see some, I can kind of see your reasoning on that. There's a method to the madness sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, let's yeah, talk- it's, it's, it's a weird thing, you know, if they were in America and, you know, Andrew was doing interviews every so often and here and there, and they were just in the consciousness, but there's not a PR campaign for them. Um, to close it off a little bit on that matter, Tim has said the band need to do a documentary, they need to update and really sort of try and do something, you know, that brings, you know, just chronicles of the career, not for the purposes of, of induction. Um, he, he couldn't give two tosses about it, although I did say to him, oh, you know, Def Leppard got in, you know, The Cure got in. He goes, The Cure? Oh, bigger than them in America. <laughs> so so I think it did ruffle his feathers a little bit. They're on the shirt too, because I saw them at the ceremony. It's that club that you don't want to be in because you're too cool. But if you're in the club, you want to be in the club. (laughs) Right, right. I'd be proper. I had thought of it before, though. You're so right, Hayden. They need that second zeitgeist moment. Whether it's a song on Stranger Things that suddenly brings Kate Bush to awareness, or the documentary on Showtime, or whatever it is, they're just desperate for that. We're all starving for a second in excess zeitgeist moment. Yeah, we. I think there's there's. I think the one one would, if I can use a golfing term, is that the, the great thing 
that stands the test of time is the songs. They're not dated. They don't have sonics that are very littered in a certain sort of synthia or whatever they are. You know, certain songs can sound fresh now. I mean, there's the odd song that's a bit dated, like Send a Message, but the songs do stand up and sound fresh as they were recorded. And I think that's a testimony to, you know, like the Beatles and, you know, uh, even you 2 and certain bands, they still stack up. And mm-hmm. that's all you got at the end of the day is your songs. Agreed. That's actually going to segue to the next question I was going to ask you guys is um, how would you describe their sound and which artists do you think they drew inspiration from to create their music? I'll let you go, John. I've yeah, probably uh, hold for a moment. You go first. <laughs> well, to me, they're just like a modern update of the Stones. I mean, I feel like yes. you, take, you take the Stones and you factor in where the Stones were influenced by blues. Mm-hmm. Imagine if the Stones had been influenced by funk. and that to me is kind of what the the bedrock of in excess is. You have the technological tools that were available in the eighties with some synthesizers and some, you know, big drums and some great guitar riffs and stuff like that. And they incorporated all of those things, but like Hayden said, not in a way that sounds dated or genre specific or anything like that, but they use the tools that were available at that time to enhance and embellish the bedrock of their sound, which was a funkier uh, Rolling Stones. That's what I think of when I think of it. Yeah. I think that if I think back to the bands that uh, uh, influenced Tim and uh, Andrew and some of the stuff in the early days, um, Roxy Music were a big influence. And you've got the saxophone part of Kirk. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a six-piece, which opens up a few different sort of sounds and sonics and things. Uh, the Clash, you know, were a big band, the angsty sort of stuff there, the Stones particularly, the Doors, you know, a little bit with Michael there. Um, and you're right. I think that's a really good point, John, about, you know, you've got the modern-day more, the tools to use, the influences. Um, and I think what they had was a courage or a courageousness not to be limited to a sound. Mm-hmm. They were right. They were comfortable putting on, you know, we might do a, a, an episode on talk, talk about one, two punches of completely diametrical different songs after each other. I mean, you know, they, they weren't afraid to sequence albums that would take you on tours of left, right and everywhere. Yeah. They, and they just didn't, they, they owned their, they, what they did also too, which protected the integrity of things, they owned their own tapes and recordings and production costs. They got their own studios. When they had enough cash, they put money into that. So they weren't beholden to the record company to tell them what to record and having A&R guys going and going, yeah, just you know, move the chorus here and change that word around. They weren't beholden to that inf- interference. Interesting. I think what was really interesting about the Mystified documentary, which I watched last night finally. I've held, I've held off watching this movie until last night for whatever reason in my life. But I thought what was really fascinating about their process is that when Michael especially would write the songs with Andrew, they would he would also think about the melodies, which I think is pretty rare. You don't hear too many songwriters that also think of the music components of the songs. Yeah. So usually like in Squeeze, one writes the, the songs, the other writes the music. And even yeah. like um, Elton John and Bertie uh, Toplin, like there's like those partnerships. But I think it's fascinating yes. that especially Michael, it seems, thought of both. And I think that's very yeah. special. So... Well, it is because I think Andrew has gone on record a lot of times. So, well, look, Michael didn't really play an instrument; his voice was the instrument. But, but Michael could, you know, could almost write a chorus or a melody or add a tune to things or put a lyrical phrasing to things that help, you know, Andrew in the songwriting craft. Um, and I did quite appreciate how much I think Andrew relied on Michael until after Michael passed, and, and Andrew really 
despite the genius that he is, I think undervalues his own lyric writing despite the fact we think he's a great lyricist. But mm-hmm. when you go back there, you know, Andrew took a long time to sort of, you know, dust off the, the coattails and start writing again and hence he, you know, paired up with Guy Chambers and mm-hmm. uh, the guy from the New Radicals, uh, Greg Alexander, who's a great songwriter and a, and a few others, um, just to sort of have a person to bounce off, I think, um, for, for, for lyrics and things. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think the lyrical stuff that Michael brought in, I mean, you know, Andrew turns up in Hong Kong with his tape, Michael goes away 10 minutes later, he's got Need You Tonight. You know, it was, yeah. it was it. Yeah. And the thing too is Hayden, like, especially a song like Need You Tonight, it's so weird, like lyrically and musically, like it, it shouldn't work almost, but it does. And, I, and that's what I thought was so interesting about that creative process, especially with Michael. It just, it boggles my mind because. It's interesting because there are songs that come along that sound, don't sound like anything you've ever heard before. Mm-hmm. And people respond in two different ways. They either respond in a way that's slightly off-putting, like it's just a little too weird for me. And that all that stuff gets relegated to probably alternative radio. Right. Or they hear something that's like, I've never heard that before. And that is amazing, you know? Yeah. And then it can trans over, transfer over to pop radio. Right. And yeah. uh, this song as strange and unique as it was captured the imaginations of people that songs from squeeze or echo in the buddy men, or even some Duran Duran tracks, deeper tracks weren't, wasn't capturing that imagination, but NX need you tonight did it, you know? And uh, thankfully it, it caught the people at the right time in the right frame of mind to provoke them rather, rather than repel them. I yes. think a band gets that sort of, you know, in soccer terms, that they're the striker, they've got the ball, the crowd are watching, you've got the goalkeeper there. Can you hit the ball in the back of the onion bag? Mm. And they were at that precipice with what with uh, Listen Like These, which had sold, you know, a couple of times platinum there. And it was, their, again, probably their, you know, their sophomore release over there that had done well. And, and the world were watching, the record company were watching, and then, I think a lot goes to Richard Lowenstein's film clip. A lot goes to Nick Egan's art cover uh, where they got Michael up front and centre. Uh, it was a real composite of song meets uh, promotional video meets album cover coming across the screen, um, the innovation of it. And so the song had this unique sound to it that, you know, John, when a band comes out, it's always, what's that first song off the album going to be? It's going to set the tone of the album, isn't it? And it's going to, generally speaking, as a, a critic, you're going to review, has this band music developed, have they developed musically in the last two years since the last recording? So you compare something like Need You Tonight to something of, of, of you know, um, Listen Like This, it was a musical jump. Mm-hmm. And so all these things sort of paved together and, um, you know, and then you throw in the live live ability and, you know, they had a real negative that the record company didn't want to release the album. They didn't want to support them. And so Chris just got them into the colleges and the college circuit, which were good to them and, good to Australian bands where the younger people were listening. France were good to them in terms of making it a hit. They played colleges and campuses, ended up in, you know, stadiums at the end of the tour. So they worked it. They, they are humble enough to work it from humble beginnings. It doesn't hurt that there are six tremendously good-looking guys, four of <laughs> them are like among the most beautiful men ever, <laughs> that have ever lived. So yeah, well, that didn't yeah. hurt at all, you know. Not That's at true. all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's talk about their um, – uh, music videos because I think this is one of the th- reasons I think they became so massive and even beyond that TV they're just such a visual band like the concerts that they played it's just a lot of it's so legendary 
how do you think more broadly, how do you think that they're so well regarded as a visual band, like music videos, concerts, stuff like that? Yeah, look, I think they they came part of Grime in Australia. Again, I said a bit earlier, we all bands and videos. If you look at ACDC with Bon Scott, there's a video in Melbourne here for Jailbreak. It's filmed out in the western suburbs, about 20 kilometres from where I am, or 15 miles. That's that's where Jailbreak from ACDC was filmed. ACDC filmed, you know, a long way to the top if you want rock and roll in our main street of our city, near the trams going down Swanston Street in the city. But that was just a local TV show saying, we want you to film a video of going down the main street on the back of a lorry van with some bagpipes. Um, they, I think they were quite inspiring to bands like NXS to say, okay, do your own videos in the early days. Something like um, Don't Change and The One Thing, I think, were directed by Scott Hicks, who made Shine and uh, Nightfall and Cedars and whatever. He was an early Adelaide filmmaker. Mm. Uh, he filmed those clips in the early days. Um, Alex Preuss, uh, who did Dark City and iRobot, who I've been dealing with a little bit recently, he did Kiss the Dirt video in the outback of Australia. Um, and, you know, Richard Lowenstein, that was, you know, he did the first Hunters and Collectors video for talking to a stranger filmed in St Kilda here in Melbourne. So there was a cultural scene, particularly in Melbourne, with a lot of art and filmmakers and access to TV shows and low-budget stuff as an augmentation to the um, to the to the song. So it was a natural thing to do, and they were often done on the cheap, but a lot of them have a real lot of charm years later. Yes, budgets increased and worldwide MTV became a big thing. You don't have to spend a lot of money to make a great clip, you know, and I think in excess... You know, even with the What You Need clip, I still think it's their greatest clip. Mm-hmm. I think Jagger was sat next to a Australian actress friend of his and saw that video one night in, in LA and this Aussie actress, I think her name's Roxanne Wilson, whatever, said, Jagger said, who's this guy? Who's this band? And mm-hmm. and because and, this video clip, you know, is such a classic clip and the song and the hooks and it's almost animated with video shots and then it goes into real time. It was just quite literary. It's, it's a better clip than Need You Tonight, and it got, I think, a nominated for video of the year as well. But but they were they were challenging particularly to make sure that the clips did justice to the song. And they they even in 93, they did a full Moon Dirty Hearts film. They got 11, 12 local Australian filmmakers to do a song from each track and oh, film really? a clip. Only time it's ever been done. A couple of those directors have gone on to film things in Hollywood and things like that. So... They're always giving back to a lot of local filmmakers who maybe weren't necessarily tracking square with lots of money. Like, you know, Lowenstein went on to do 16 videos, but he went up and did the Burn For You video mm. uh, that led to everything from there. But that came on the back of Harness and Collectors and Cold Chisel. Mm. So they they tried and they, they were daring and they were innovative. And, um, you know, they're, they, they, um, they didn't want to do big live concerts in spandex jumping around, <laughs> you know, that type, you know. Um, but they stand up nowadays. They are, you know, there's not many bad clips, I think, in their repertoire, which is great. That's true. It's true. Was there anything else before we go into the 90s? Is there anything that you guys want to talk about in the 80s era of NXS that we haven't talked about yet? I don't think so. For me personally, I think is in the 90s is when it starts getting interesting. That's what I was um, thinking too, quite honestly. Yeah. So do you guys mind if we go into the 90s? Yeah. Yeah. What I could probably do as a segue in might be handy is it was interesting with the kick tour going for the better part of 18 months and they were everywhere. They did, you know, probably a thousand gigs or something like that. But they, by the end of sort of 88, early 89, they were really due to sort of a bit of a rest. They'd recorded Listen Like Thieves, toured, 
kick, you know, you know, that they'd probably had four albums in six and a half years, relentless tours back to back. Um, they'd probably made some money for the first time. You know, Chris, the, the manager, okay, let's get back in, guys, let's record the next thing. They just said, listen, Chris, we're all having a year off. Now that was sort of sacred, you know, you know, sacrosanct, uh, well, sacrilegious in those days to do that. Um, but they just needed a freshen up. Now, weirdly enough, you know, Andrew went off and started writing stuff for a lady called Jenny Morris and wrote some great stuff. Gary went off and joined a band called Absent Friends that had the number one selling single that next year. Um, fantastic song I'll share with you. Um, uh, Michael went off and did the Max Q album, which was fantastic. Um, the head of I bought time. that album when it came out. Yeah. I, liked, I loved about half of it and half of it was too weird for me. Revisited. And I sold my copy and I regret it to this day. I'll get, one, really from, I'll get one from you here and send it to you, John. I'll get one and send it to you. Yeah, the... Uh, but, you know, some of the stuff on that, you know, Bono went and got some of the remixes off those guys for some of YouTube stuff. So Michael, especially that dance stuff, because Bono had a bit of an epiphany in 89, 90, going, oh, my God, my fear is going to nightclubs with Michael and none of our songs are played. That is U2. And he was hearing all the NXS songs. Um, so it was, it was weird. I felt like NXS, I'm probably jumping the gun, but they sort of veered towards more of a U2 anthemic-y sort of uh, ethereal sound, ethereal sound with a few more sonic experimentations, whereas U2 sort of shifted towards more of an in-excess dance, mm. you know, uh, flavour funk sound, you know, towards their careers. And I think that's just through association and mutual respect and time together. Um, right. But that 89 sort of year off was quite vital for, I think, the band, and then they then came back for the X sessions and went from there. Yeah, let's talk about X because that's kind of, I think, a turning point for the band in so many ways. Do you guys have thoughts on, on that album? The big single was Suicide Blonde. That was right. a, a big hit, at least here in the States. Um, but thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts. Let you me go first, I'll, John. I'd be keen to hear you first. Yeah. Okay. My my feeling, you kind of touched on this earlier. I don't think I don't know that you were speaking specifically about this album, Hayden, but you were talking about people going in and sort of not reinventing their sound on a on a subsequent album. And I feel like I like X. It, it contains at least two of probably my top 10 in excess songs, the stairs and uh, disappear. Yeah. But um, it sounds to some degree like a, like a carbon copy of, but like a lesser carbon copy of X suicide or kick. I'm sorry. Yes. Kick of kick. Uh, Suicide Blonde is an obvious hit, obvious first, you know, out of the gate smash to me, bitter tears deserve to be an equally as big, song and for whatever reason there there was not enough steam to make that song rise as high as it should have um those two songs are indelible hits to me beyond that uh there's some strong stuff there's a lot of filler on that album and it just wasn't enough to maintain that zeitgeisty moment that they had it should have been enough there should have suicide blonde should have been a trojan horse enough to keep the momentum going but it just wasn't so the interesting thing here, it's a bit Not like Oasis. Anyway, I yeah, say. it's a bit like Oasis be here now and kick. Uh, X has sold over 10 million copies, which might be about double the, the amount of what Velvet Underground ever did. True. However, critically, you know, and commercially, there's, there's there are always two different arguments. Um I, I I loved X at the time coming out. I was in that youth and, and consolidating, et cetera, there. I think Michael probably summed it up. He said, you know, we like X, but we maybe think, if anything, it may have been a fraction polite. Mm. And I like the adjective because Mark Opitz, who has been very kind to us with our podcasts and we've got to know a little bit personally, did the next album, which is the Welcome album. And I think 
when you do an album like Kick, often, you know, people go, okay, what's next? If they had to put Welcome out next, it may have scared the listeners off because it was left and right, but it may have garnered them a, a more longer uh, time in the zeitgeist because people would have admired its daringness. And, I and, and, and I think X, weirdly enough, was a big was big South America, you know, whatever, but not as much as Kick. But X was big in the UK. UK were always an album behind. Mm-hmm. So X was massive in the UK and Europe, and then Welcome to Webio was big in the UK and Europe because they were always an album behind. The Australians always were dealt, and we always still are dealt a harsh sort of uh, appraisal by our UK forebearers because we're the country where they sent the convicts to to punish us and we created a new country. Now we decide if they can come here or not. So we have this interesting sort of uh, tit-for-tat thing, mm-hmm. uh, especially when it comes to cricket, uh, which is our version of baseball. Having said all of that, the UK were begrudging with kick and finally accepted them and then really embraced them with X and hence Wembley. But I think you're right, Mark. I think in the, if you look back 30 years later and go, okay, if they had a choice between releasing Welcome or X, they should have released Welcome. However, um, X consolidated sales. It probably consolidated mainstream success. Of, you know, we have a song in Australia called By My Side that was a massive hit down here, which is the film clip's beautiful. It's in the Sydney Opera House. That could have been a big hit in the, U- in the US, but it was never released, which was strange because Never Tear Us Apart, it's in that similar mode. It was probably a bit cookie cutter in terms of the the four singles, similar to the X, sorry, the Kick singles, and it did lose a bit of steam on the second side of the album. Um, I guess that being the case, as I said, with grunge coming in sort of late '91, early '92, by the time Welcome came around, you two I think got Uptong out just in time before grunge hit, yeah. <laughs> and was weird enough of the change from the Joshua because remember that you two got slammed for a rattle and harm. Rellin Hum is, is commercially one of their biggest sellers and critically one of their worst performers. Now, I love Rattle and Hum, but it was a sort of a, again, a, probably a padding album. It was half remix, half covers, half new stuff. So, yeah, they never quite got the landing point after X that probably they deserve with Welcome and Full Moon and the others. Do you think part of it is like looking at their uh, discography for a sec that they took those long breaks? So, do well, you they think did, for- you're right. Because I think part of it is uh, with with grunge coming up. Because when was Welcome released? Like the summer, of, like well, it was released in late '92, and they just chose not to really uh, go on tour. They did a clubs and uni tour in Australia, and a few little things around the UK and in America. And they they legitimately and realistically decided to burst their own bubble to a point. They go, we're not touring it. We don't want to be a big stadium cliche act anymore. We've climbed the wall with Wembley. Be like the police, they couldn't get any bigger or better. Mm-hmm. So they deliberately chose not to be, be a, a big stadium band thereafter. And some people would say, oh, well, you know, you weren't as popular. But, you know, what comes first? You announced it in excess too. Whether your album's doing great or not, you know, people would probably go out and still go follow and listen to them. And they still had 240 hits off Welcome. They had not enough time at 28. Beautiful Girl got a Grammy nomination. You know, I think it was 46th in the charts or something. Um, so it wasn't a bad, you know, scenario. But they they probably didn't tour the Welcome one. Mark Opitz really regrets it. He felt like they could have got out there with all the great stuff, Kick and X and Listen Like Thieves yeah. and all this great new stuff with Welcome and had a real push into that new technology screens and market. But they were a bit worn out, I think. People were worn out at that point. Yeah, Opus uh, expressed that to me too. He felt like that was what kind of torpedoed them a lot was they refused to tour on this album, which he especially, because he's back at the helm of this album, feels very strongly like this is this is the one to kind of recapture some of that magic. I also feel like putting, I feel like it's an odd album cover 
it uh, it sounds weird to say that, but it's got three little boys on it. When you have six of the best looking men of all time, just put them on the cover and let people, you know, drool all over it. They blew it. It, com- it was com- commercial suicide. It was. And, it was. and later on, yeah. they reissued another album with the interior shots where they've never looked any better. Now, I'm a heterosexual strong guy. And I have no problems with people's persuasion, as as Jerry once said. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Um, what I would say, though, they they look fantastic on the interior shots out in the desert. The suits, they're they're all 31, 32, and the prime of their male beauty. It was weird, but remember, this was a era era of minimalism. This was an sure. era where bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana had not enough attention span or wanting enough verbose language to. Call a song anything more than one syllable or one line. The album Ten, you know, the song Once, the song, um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. All Jeremy. These, so Jeremy, yeah. all this. This was a minimalism era where uh, uh, less was more, and I think they were going down quite an artistic bent there. But it was, it wasn't, wasn't the best decision. Well, I think too, like at least welcome to wherever you are. It's a very experimental album. Like they're throwing a lot of strange instruments. They're trying to kind of branch out and they are have always been very versatile in their sound and approach to pop music, even as a very broad concept. But it's just one of those scenes where like, I wonder if it was released the year before, if they would have made like. Well, Mark, that, Mark, Mark, I was produced it and it was 10 years almost to the year that he did uh uh, Shibu Shabar. And he'd seen these young guys at 21, 22 come in, and he's going to come back as well-honed, well-crafting, songwriting-type sort of experts. And on that particular album, it was a very much a, 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 a uh, Andrew, Michael, and John, uh, sorry, and a Mark Opitz initiative. The other three, four band members had some issues, you know, some, some marriage issues, some health issues, some fitness issues. So it was very much, you know, Michael, and Andrew putting a lot of time into the songwriting. There was that era where Mark had said, listen, if you're going to do something, let's do something really musical. Let's do something that challenges you. He put it to them. He goes, okay, you know, I like X, but it really is a consolidating album. I don't think it's necessary musically speaking to your best skills and strengths. Let's come back with something sort of, you know, completely different. And, you know, you open up with an Indian sitar and a tabla and, you know, (laughs) you're going into, you know, these other songs and tracks. And, Mark was very big on sequencing and he sequences the hell out of that album, you know, in terms of the start to the finish. And it really is a, a that classic 12 album piece of music that you need to listen as a whole. Yeah. Um, and I think even if you don't have, I mean, it did 4 million worldwide, num- number one in England. It, it, it got, there were, there were critics around the world who gave it just a hard time on kick and things who loved that album. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the band are very proud of it. So it still sits up very high there and it's aged very well. I think that's something we look at music, it's aged well. That's yeah, probably the is. key. Now, was this the album that they got dropped from Atlantic, like um, Welcome no, to Everywhere? No, what, what happened? The they, yeah, that was the next one, Full Moon. They, one of the things Kirk had said is that we're not touring because we want to record more. And with touring and the efforts it takes out of you and with young fans, I thought, well, if we can avoid touring Welcome, we, we'll go back in within three months and start recording the next album, which was Full Moon. Um, and they released that literally a year later. And they were coming up to the last album, I think, on their deal with uh, with uh, Warners, and they had a deal with Polygram signed up. And that's why you also saw a Best Of or Greatest Hits released a year later in 94. Mm-hmm. They were they, they got no record US company support in America. 
I don't think you could even buy Full Moon down at Tower Records if that exists anymore, but you you, you can't um, really buy it. It's a deleted copy. So the, the record label gave up on them. And But the UK, the GIF was a hit there. They had other hits there. It was a hit in Australia. Um, the songs, we think it sounds great. We did a four, we probably only podcasted, we did a four-episode deep dive into Full Moon Dirty Hearts recently. But we got Mark on. He told us the recording and how they did it, and it was fantastic, you know, insight. Full Moon is the hidden gem in their collection, if you ask me. I yeah. love that album. Um, in fact, I've been trying. <laughs> Aiden, I'm so jealous. I'll, I'll get Mark. I'll, I'm happy to get Mark to talk to you, you know. They got dropped by Atlantic, or at least in the States, right? Were, were they signed to Atlantic, or was it Warner Brothers? Well, they were for a lot of it. Murphy, uh, the manager, he was quite clever in the early days. He would sign them. In Australia, they were signed, you know, to a different label. In, in the, the UK, I think it was Mercury. Uh, in America, it was Atlantic. In the early days, I think it was Atco, which was Atlantic Co, was the sub-label uh, of Atlantic for alternative artists. So Chris was quite good at negotiating different record deals in different countries. But um, I think they then went to Polygram. They had a deal thereafter that uh, they had sort of maybe gone to. Uh, even up until Elegantly Wasted, they I think they'd signed a six-album deal even though there was, you know, maybe thoughts they weren't going to go on before Michael had died. So, um, but they had this gap after really the the Warner experience of 93, 94. They had really four years off studio albums. They came back for Allegedly Waste in 97 uh, on a new label then. Yeah, it's just interesting because it feels like for Elegantly Wasted, which was released in 97, it feels like they were trying to recapture their success from a decade ago, or at least like an attempt to, to yeah, to do this that. is an album that's interesting amongst our listeners. That um, some it's it's an acquired taste for some, and, and but over the journey, I think if I was to sort of give it the five second review, it's probably Michael his most vocal, honest, and lyrical lyrical honesty. The lyrics, Michael was always a bit obtuse and obscure, and a little bit sort of uh, double entendre-ish, and yet to sometimes interpret lyrics. And he was such a great phraser of the lyric, you know, all veils are misty, um, and looks that chill divine. I mean, that sort of little phrase, who comes up with that, you know? Um, but he, he lyrically, I think, on songs like Just a Man and Everything and Girl on Fire and Elegantly Waste, whatever, he really opened himself up honest, with an honesty on that album. And Matthew Marsland, who's a very good friend of the band and very much knows everything about In Excess more than I do, and he's quite a regular poster on things, he said that a lot of the demos that Andrew and Michael did uh, weren't too far off what came out in the studio. They went to Canada. They recorded that with Bruce Fairbairn uh, in Canada and Vancouver. Um, it was quite a quick recording process. Um, it's quite it's it's less you know studio trickery. It's a little more organically sounding. Um, I, I, we like it as a bit of an epitaph to Michael. You can really sort of sense where he was at when you look at the lyrics and go back and listen to the songs. Um, but they were. You know, I think they were going back. I think the motto Andrew said is, what is this thing called NXS? We've gone down this curve, that curve, tried to claim this, go for that, develop to this. Let's just be the best NXS can be in 1997 now and write great songs and, and stand for that, you know, and I think that was sort of the mission statement. So it wasn't sort of anything, I think, a musical, a massive musical leap, but, uh, I mean, we, you know, I'm biased, but I'm also critical, and I think that's what our podcast aims to do. We don't want to be sycophantic and love everything. Uh, but I think that album stacks up very favourably, uh, you know, 30, 25 years later, more than X does. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. It's a good point. I feel like in this era too, like 
Michael Hutchins is also in the tabloids a lot, like his personal life. And I think that's kind of, am I correct to say he and like, it's like, cause of his, I guess, Lost relationships him. and public Love persona kind of addiction. Yeah, absolutely. Question, all these things. Yeah. So I feel like that also overshadowed the band too, in a way. So it kind of, it's hard because he is the lead singer. So, and he's like the actual person. Well, I think, to, the, I don't know. I think the, the thing that is weird for an Australian is he went to live in London and he uh, essentially befriended Sir Bob Geldof's wife. Now, you can understand Sir Bob Geldof's reverence in the UK and then you add in the Fleet Street media and you add in this colonial wild boy Australian bloke. Well, he was harangued from pillar to post and I think it obviously had a bit of a, a uh, an ongoing effect in his downfall. Like nothing great came from Michael living in London. Other than that, he met Andy Gill from Bomb the Bass and, deal, and dealt with, you know, Joe Strummer from The Clash and other people to record his solo stuff because, you know, he was quite – like, I really knew Michael loved him. You know, you look at – I think you judge friendships in people's lives on how many friends or who the friends they have. You know, let's look at the people that he he hung out in circles with or spill uh, – sorry, still speak in reverent tones. I mean, Nick Cave was godmother to his daughter. Mm-hmm. Bono – best friends, et cetera, there, you know, uh, going through things. Um, Andy Gill from Bomb the Base, uh, a really sort of renowned sort of guy. Uh, the guys from Black Black Grape and uh, and Happy Mondays, you know, Michael got up on stage with them. Um, the only guys he didn't really get on well with the Oasis brothers. Uh, but, you know, that's another episode in itself. <laughs> I, I, well, I will say I, I watched the Mystified documentary and <laughs> – I'll be honest, I sort of remember that, but I re- forgot how terrible it was because yeah. that was 95, right, or 96, yeah. give or take. I think it was and, the 96 Brit Awards, yeah. After Oasis 95 were, were the zeitgeist, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But also they were such assholes because basically he's just presented them award, like he's not thinking anything. And yeah. this is the low point probably of the band that yeah. basically they yeah. call the has-been. And, nice. and, 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 and. You know, I'll give some context. So there's a YouTube 12-minute justification from a, uh, a British fan about why why that was justified and why it didn't influence suicide and all stuff. Let, let, let me give you the crux of it all. Michael was such a carer and a giving person to other bands and artists. Whether it came to the Australian Mate Tour, making sure the Triffids, who had a top 20 hit in the UK, which was rare for an Australian band in the 80s, he made sure they're on the Triffids Tour. Uh, whether it came to supporting uh, warm-up bands and things like that, you know, who supported in excess, he was very gracious and um, and stuff like that to them. Um, they'd been, you know, they'd been supported Queen at, at Wembley and had tomatoes thrown at them and they'd been on the receiving end of stuff, you know. Uh, five years later they were selling out Wembley. But Michael was a very gracious, caring sort of guy and he, like, he'd come back to Australia and go, listen, guys, you're going to listen to this band called Radiohead. There's a song going to come out here in six months called Creep. You're going to love it. He was ahead of the time. He was in the clubs, the scenes. He was always championing bands and people and getting people to doing guest vocals on things, uncredited and things like that, that never saw the light of day. So to get up and give an award to Oasis, he was genuinely really happy for them. Noel got up and said what he said. Um, <clears throat> a postscript to that many years later is that Nick Egan, who directed the Oasis clip, Stop Crying Your Heart or My Heart Out in Canada, Liam went up to him and said to Nick Egan, said, I'm really sorry, mate, because that guy was your friend and Noel's a wanker and blah, blah, blah. He's your mate and that's not, that, that's shit and I'm just going to apologise to him. Noel Gallagher supported you two in Australia three years ago, Flying Birds or whatever. He was asked in an interview out here, oh, do you regret what you did, blah, blah. He goes, I regret it the day I said it. 
I've regretted every day every every day since. And uh, he released an EP uh, with High Flying Birds about a year or two ago, <clears throat> and said, you know, this is a this is a funky sort of sound. This is back in the days when great bands like NXS and 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 Bowie and and Noel Rogers were putting things on top of the pops. So it was a flippant, stupid remark at the time that that probably needs to be forgiven. If I can forgive it, anyone can forgive it. Absolutely. You know, but that's context around it. A lot of NXS fans still hating for it. Yeah. Um, but you know. That was their stick. I mean, Noel and Liam hate each other. They say worse about each other than they said about Michael. <laughs> yeah, I've heard Noel uh, express uh, uh, apologize profusely for that. Yeah, and I, I love both those bands a lot, and yeah, I get it. But I just just thinking about this clip now is making me a little sick because it's so heartbreaking to me. Yeah, I remember, and when you watch the Mystify, or you could pull it up on YouTube or whatever, watching, I might get choked up. Watching Michael's face as yeah. he is walking off stage. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. he I see a man who's trying to smile yeah. and look to get, you know, like he's holding yeah. it together in a moment when you know that inside he's already getting crushed by their band not being oh, big anymore yeah, and everything 100%. like that. UK photographers, everything. You're right. And I uh, it, yeah, I'll, I I'll, let a, I'll let you have a moment because that. It was almost like the look on Chris Rock's face after he got hit by Will Smith. Yeah. yeah. Chris Rock stumbled when he was doing his monologue thereafter, as you would, mm-hmm. and you could see the look on his face. He was crushed. And and Michael sort of, you know, was like Oasis, put his fist in the air like, yeah, great. Like he was never jealous of other bands. Mm-hmm. He was inspired. But you're right. If you're in a if you're in that 15-year part of your career and the music trends are changing and your band's seeing as anachronism and you know, you, the harder you try, the less you achieve. It, it can be difficult, and and you, you know what? And you got the commercial arm of the business, and you got the critical arm of the business. But one needs paying and funding, and then you know you're dealing with the Paula stuff and the UK stuff. You know, I think it. You know, we're lucky that they made it elegantly wasted, but unfortunately, well, let me say this: fortunately, what the the, the mystified doc- documentary has done fantastically is in Australia. Unfortunately, when Michael passed on November 27, 1997. This was pre-internet. This was pre-social media. This is where it was tabloid, it was media, TV, whatever. But there was also, because of that lack of information zeitgeist, there was like, oh, yeah, the auto, you know, asphyxiation, you know, a, a sexual deed gone wrong. And Paula didn't help the case by denying that he would never he, he would never kill himself. Unfortunately, at that time, there was a lot of cloudiness. I took it upon myself to read the coroner's reports. I took it upon myself to read every book and everything relevant to it. And the very simple thing is that Mystify documentary demonstrates is that you had a guy who was on Prozac, antidepressants, had cocaine in the system, had alcohol, was lonely, was in a hotel room by himself, was about to embark on a tour that was 70% filled in Australia, their home base. They'd been critically lambasted in Australia post the concert for life and the media had turned on them here. Other bands in Australia at the time had dissed them because you know, oh, you got too big for your boots and we're now the next big thing and that alternative 92 Britpop thing, you almost have to challenge the predecessors to make your own land space. So we had our own version of Oasis bands who didn't give Inexist their cred. And and you had a guy that um, was mentally unwell and you had a guy who, who, who rung his partner up and wanted them to come to Australia for Christmas. She said she couldn't come because Bob wouldn't let them. He rung Bob Geld off and then they got into a slanging match. People in the room next door heard it. And then you heard a scenario there where he then 
you know, is over the top on drugs and things, then rings his manager, Martha, trip in New York, says, Martha, I can't do this life anymore. I'm going to kill myself. Now, when that's documented in a coroner's report, people like me will read it, but the rank and file person, like, oh, autofixiation, this is how he died. But the great thing the documentary did was basically say, look, man was unwell. There wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, media, social media, men's health, sycophanticness now, where men's health is a, an admitted flaw. Um, Michael suffered in silence, probably. He was always a pleaser to people. Yeah, Dad, I'm fine. Michael, you don't look well. I'm fine, Dad, I'm fine. But people aren't always well. And Michael wasn't well. And he made, as Bono articulately said, he was stuck in a moment he couldn't get out of. And he I had a momentary lapse of reason, like Pink Floyd said, and I'm sure he regrets it, but that's what happened. Yeah. I think something that the documentary uh, put into perspective that I personally didn't know, because I think it was not said until after he passed, was the bike incident in Copenhagen in 1982, sure. which I think is what was the downfall of, and that led to everything that would happen the next five years, because for context for listeners, he had, um, they were riding bikes, him and I guess his girlfriend at the time. Yeah, he's in Copenhagen. I think they were riding bikes into town. They were getting a pizza or something like that on the street. Right. And then a cab drive was beeping them. And I think he got off his bike. And anyway, the cab driver came up and King hit him from behind. We call it a King hit in Australia, or we now call it a Coward Punch. And he had a stray. We have a big campaign against him. But yeah, he, he fell down and hit his head on the, uh, the cobblestone road. And he fractured and, his skull. Yeah, he was unconscious. He was in hospital. And, and the Lost thing is, sense is that of taste and smell. Correct, John. Correct. Correct, because he didn't go to a doctor. He refused to go to the doctor. Well, he went he, in. He got checked right. out too early. Yeah, and and I don't think that they ran as many tests in those days or things as he could have. But he he had you know severe brain damage, and there maybe could have drugs or medical supplies or support he got that may have taken the pressure off the brain. But he had a you know a brain bleed and a few different things. Now. I just think he checked out too early. I think he through his own decision making. Um, not to yeah. sue or anything, but he, he just didn't have the medical imprimatur imposed on him, nor did he impose the imprimatur on himself. It was very sad. And then even when he went to doctors uh like in like France and uh, across the world, it was almost like too little too late. Like it was because it didn't get treated quick enough yeah. that it already kind of caused him to lose like the sense of smell i think that the, the bands the yeah the collective thing on the band was he just had a shorter you know fuse and then that blew up in some of the recording scenarios and things like that i mean they they really recorded two more albums after that over five years so and he lived his own jet set lifestyle so the band didn't see him that much thereafter um but that's ultimately what happened he had a shorter fuse shorter tolerance levels and in hindsight, sometimes we're great at retrospective diagnoses. Um, Mark uh, Opitz, you know, room with him in, in Capri when they were filming, sorry, when they were making Full Moon and he would get into, you know, slanging matches late at night, you know, with people on the phone and band members and, you know, I think he pulled a knife on Gary in the recording studio over an argument and it was, you know, I'm not saying the recording material suffered because look at Fleetwood Mac, they had some issues too uh, and rumours came out. But, uh, um, yeah, it was a sad that, that that medical thing was, I think, a genesis of him going on to depressants and things like that because he's such a happy guy, you know, generally. That's what's so sad because even, like, in the footage of Mystify, it's just, like, you see this happy, lucky guy. He seems like the life of the party, like, backstage and on stage and then... Yeah, it's just and he it's so and sad. he sensed that 
footage, if you can remember, where he's up in the hills with his sister, Tina, and they're going to the the flower fields. I can't remember if it was poppies or roses or one of these French flowers um, that's up in these uh, hills in the, uh, the lower sort of um, area of southern France and things. And, you know, him not smelling or drinking wine and taste buds and women and all sorts of things, he was a sensuous guy. You know, it's like... It's like sort of taking away, you know, the, uh, uh, the the hands from Leonardo da Vinci to paint. You know, Michael needed his his taste and smell and senses. He was a very sort of, uh, you know, um, vitriol-type guy, you know, um, you know, full of passion and, and earnestness. And those senses, I think, affected his day-to-day. Yeah. Then ultimately affected his state of mind. Yeah. So you imagine 100%. a guy with a lust for life as yeah. great as someone like Michael Hutchinson yeah. and a lust for women or a, yes. a love of women, of yeah. fine foods, of travel, yeah. all of that being impeded somehow yeah. for a guy like him, that must have <clears throat> taken, you know, yeah. percentages off of his quality of life. Yeah, you know? yeah that's right. And, and look, I, I guess, um, from the band dynamic point of view, something that I think is really to put on the record that Andrew, we, we did a four-hour interview with Andrew. He um, was in Sydney and was able, we've got a big relationship with his wife, Marlena, and we were able to bypass all the managers to sort of talk nice. to him. And, and I said, Marlena, about time to get Andrew on. She goes, oh, I'll get him on Saturday. I'm in Sydney. I've got, she has her checkups. She's had She's a recovering breast cancer survivor. So Andrew was just in the hotel and he didn't really need to go for the chemo or well, sorry, not the chemo, but just the checkups and things. So Michael had three, sorry, Andrew had three or four hours to kill. So we were able to get Andrew in the hotel room back in about September, October for about, well, it's going to be two hours. We went into four. We were doing the welcome to wherever you are. So it was a passion piece for him. And we had Mark Opitz on as well and it was great. But, you know, through a little bit of trust and time, the single biggest thing that he shared that probably, you know, bands don't share always about posthumous bandmates, and that was he said, look, I, you know, I remember being on the tour of Rally Waste and there was good times and we were playing well and, and we were back together and Michael just looked over at us as a band and said, I like um, being with you guys, I feel safe. And that sort of, you know, I think probably didn't dawn on Andrew. It's, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, blah, 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 Aussie bravado, but... I think later on, things like those memories resonate with Andrew because, you know, unfortunately, and I know this might not be popular assertion, but Paula would ring the the, the paps. Hey, we're, we're inside this uh, motel having lunch today. Well, how did the paps turn up and find out what place you're having lunch at? All right, they'll tell you, but she would often alert the paps to where they were. She liked the drama a bit, you know. Um, and, look, he wasn't good for her ultimately. She was a teetotaler and ended up being a drogo, you know. So, you know, they weren't good for each other. But um, Michael being away from that and being on tour with the band and, and with his mates and with his family who knew him pretty well and were protective and the band of brothers, so to speak, I think that's a memory that Andrew cherishes a bit, especially that last tour. I just think that it's just such a sad state of affairs. Like this last five years or so of his life, it's just is plagued by depression and anger and just sadness and it's just sad to see it with someone who's so lively and uh, well, one thing, energetic. Yeah. I don't know. One thing that we've tried to do to the podcast and sometimes, you know, committing one podcast idea and trying to come up with new, fresh and different ways of, of, of keeping a listener audience invigorated because, you know, I, I spoke to a friend the other day and, and, and I said, oh, I'm doing the NHS podcast. She says, oh, how many episodes? She's on 20, 30, so we're up to 108. She goes, how can you, you know, and even the band have said, how can you talk about us for 108? I said, well, listen, we, 
we, we're delving deep under some minutiae here, but right. we, we can turn something into something. But one thing we tried to do overall is to have it as a bit of a cathartic experience. We've got an episode this week, which is uh, it's a three-week episode based on nominate your top 10, or sorry, your top primal Michael moments. It could be in video, it could be in interview, it could be in uh, 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 on stage, it could be in print, it could be lyrically, um, whatever. It could be a moment at a concert you saw. So we had a flood of nominations, okay? Um, Earlier this week, I let the girls get on and, and do their girly thing where they're all talking about those nominations, and next week we do our top ten. Um, so we're trying to sort of, you know, do something up that pumps up the tyres of Michael and goes back to things. The other thing we've found, weirdly enough, it's been quite cathartic. We're trying to sort of celebrate and go, look, he, he's he's dead and he took his life, and as dramatically as bad as it is, let's use this podcast as a vehicle to celebrate what was great and this guy, over 37 years in his life, had the life that I'm jealous of. Mm-hmm. I'm 51, and I'm eternally jealous. Uh, I can see John smiling there, okay? His wife's not listening, but I think John's slightly jealous. <laughs> I think I think there were women wanted to be with him and men wanted to be him. Right. So we're taking the approach that, albeit his life was short, um, we just lost a famous cricketer in Australia called Shane Warne. He was our Tiger Woods of cricket. And he's from my city here, and he was the, the guy who was one of the icons of cricket, had a heart attack at 51 and died. A bit like Michael, showboat, and Michael and him loved each other, concerts and chain to go backstage as a youngster. Michael brought him on stage, whatever. Shane Warne was one of the biggest celebrities in Australia. You would have seen his reports in the news in America that he died, but he he was he was in Tiger Woods, Federer Cup Company. But Shane lived a similar cavalier lifestyle. We all wanted to be Shane Warne and uh, – I mean, he was engaged to Liz Hurley for five years, you know, this mm-hmm. Aussie cricketer from the suburbs, you know, befriended Liz Hurley. Mm-hmm. Michael had a great life. Um, it's sad what happened. We take it on our challenge now to celebrate his life, and we hope if his daughter ever ch- chooses to be interviewed by anyone, that we're a safe place that she might want to come on and talk to, that we can share memories of her dad because she's very loyal to him, even though she doesn't know him or knew him, really. Mm-hmm. Um, when the Mystified documentary was coming up, Richard had a problem with the access to the songs. You know, Chris Murphy, Love or Hate Him, protective of the catalogue. You know, Chris, you know, would sell his grandmother for a dollar, God love him, that's what a manager does. As a famous Don Henley said about uh, Irving Azoff, whatever, he might be Satan, but he's our Satan. Okay? (laughs) Chris Murphy's the same. Now, it got to the problem with the release where they had hardly any in excess songs to go into the Mystify show. They had some of Michael's solo stuff. There were a couple of songs they were granted. Tiger Lily rung up the UK arm of Michael's record company, whatever, and said, please get my dad's songs on that soundtrack. Overnight, songs came in to Richard to be able to get. And that filled out not the entire show, but gave enough of it to give an in excess emphasis. I think the band need to do a retrospective that highlights them as a collective. Mm-hmm. But I think the Mr. Fade documentary does some great things of highlighting the true story of, of Michael, who he's with, you know, how he passed away, what he succeeded in, and it documents things that take away from the cliche, lazy journalism moments. Okay. I think what I liked about Mystify was that it sort of had this approach where it wasn't just talking heads and then just had like you, you, you hear Bono and you hear like other famous people and lovers and uh, friends and whoever. But I kind of like how in the last like 10 years you've seen documentaries like Amy and like uh, Mystify and um, even 
well, I'm trying to think of other ones offhand, but there's like this like phenomenon where it's like almost like found footage or like and a lot yes, of the Sinner. movie. The, the one Sinner was a great documentary. Absolutely. And you're kind of just seeing things that you haven't seen a million times before. And I like that in Mystify 2, you see footage of Michael filming these home videos of him. Yeah, like, with Kylie on the Orient Express. Yes. And yeah. uh, all these things. So it's just like it gives it more of like a raw it's a oh, 100%. I mean, the, the thing that Richard had said, and we went to my co-host, B, who um, uh, uh, we would, would have loved to be here today, her and I met at the Mystify opening. Mm. So she was a, an English Brahmi Birmingham girl, lived in Australia for 20 years. Um, uh, we met at the Mystify opening, had a laugh, kept it in contact. I had this idea for a podcast. Um, I needed someone who could be my yin to my yang. Uh, if uh, a bit like you there with your Scottish friend John, yeah, uh, yeah. it does all the heavy lifting that I can't do, and then brings in you know I guess the only difference who comes onto the podcast because she's a fan and we we were a duo, but she does all the social media, all the stuff that I'm I'm terrible at, and she she's a great contributor and fan on the podcast as well. But she and I, um, you know, through the uh, mystified documentary, got to hear Richard speak that night, and he said, "Look, I didn't want to do the talking heads things for a couple of reasons. It's been done to death." Secondly, I've been filming this for 10 years and I didn't want to have ageism attached to the to the doco. So I might have Bono with his slick back hair that he looks like it's seven, eight years ago when he was in Australia on the, uh, you know, Songs of Innocence tour or something like that. So he wanted to not have the footage, have a sense of ages, ageism-ness to it, you know? Yeah. And I think that was good. So, you know, and you're not blinded by, oh, there's Bono now or there's Bono five years ago. It, it kept it flowing and it didn't distract you. It had a good flow to it. That that's what yeah. I liked about it too. John, did you like uh, Mystify, the documentary? I did. I I loved it. Um, it haunted me. Is the word that I keep coming back to. It haunted me for a while after I watched it. Um, like I said, going back to the Noel Gallagher moment, and and there's this scene in the end when I, he's. I think they're in the studio and he's singing and it's showing it's scrolling through texts mm-hmm. or voicemail. I'm, it was years ago. I haven't, I can't remember, but of th- things that are being said or th- thoughts he's having or conversations he's, things. Yes. Yeah. That he's having on his phone, I believe, or with someone at that moment while he's singing. And you realize how just desperate this guy is falling into, you know, a deep despair that he can't get out of. And, uh, yeah, and like we've been saying this whole time, uh, a guy like that, I mean, you just you just never know. When you look at someone like Michael, who seemed to have everything that you would ever want in this life, and it wasn't enough, or it got taken from him, or dealing with it was too hard. It's one of my favorite quotes. I've mentioned it in a few of my episodes when I had, in Mark Opitz's book, uh, he and my, he talks about a story. He tells a quick story with Michael where they have to go promote something they're working. They probably uh, um, one of the I'm albums. Welcome, maybe. I think it was yeah. welcome. That's what I was trying to think of. And Michael makes the comment, I guess it's time to put on the charisma coat. And I think about that all the time. A guy who is so aware of his magnetic magnetism out there, but is like exhausted by it as well and he's just like okay mm. i guess i gotta put my charisma coat on and go be the rock star and the front man when i'd really just rather drink a bottle of wine in a nice restaurant quietly you know i think also too that the journalists over there unfortunately and not over there but everywhere aren't interested in saying hey tell us about the bridge and never tear us apart mm-hmm. 
They go, tell us about Kylie. Or they, they want to go into sensationalism. And this is why I think we all love podcasting because we can talk like this and and it's something in, in forensic detail to the end of its life. And um, unfortunately for, you know, hearing an interview these days on a TV show, it's six minutes, greatest hits version of catchphrases. It's cliched best and it's not really that interesting. And that probably was draining for him in the end to have to answer some of those things, which ultimately why he didn't do as much media as anyone thought. I mean, Tim and Kirk did more of the media than Andrew and Michael did, which ultimately probably hurts them in America because Michael, you know, there's a lot of interviews with him and with Andrew and that, but nowhere near as many as you would think. Mm-hmm. You know, often Tim and Kirk, that was their part of the band, get out and promote this, get out and be the spokespeople of this. Uh, whereas Michael and Andrew, you do the music. Um, so he did find it hard and it was like, okay, another tour, Charisma Cape, I've got to be Michael Hutchins now, you know? Very true. Max mentions that a lot. Yeah. One quick shout out to my friend Eric Miller who mailed me a poster of, of the Mystify documentary. So it's in my room next to my bed. Pods and sods. Yes, pods and sods. That's right. Good one, yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, you open up I, me to this world of, of contemporaries, John, that I now uh, I go into tangents, listen to people you refer me to. You, you changed my life. Big, thank you. Thank you, Hayden. Sincerely. We did. We're just a big community here. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I enjoyed Mystify. I thought it was really good. I really hope more people um, get to watch it. It's just, it's a good, raw, intimate uh, portrait of someone who is so special that was taken way too soon from us. Um, and it's just a very uh, sad story. I, I was actually very sad after watching it. Like it yeah. just I, think, very, I think that, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess, you know, I feel like a bit like a family member, you know, where, you know, I've learned to live with it over a lot of time and it was so hard, you know, because there you sort of, you're banned, you know, you grow up with it. it did really feel like losing an arm and a leg or a family member. But, um, you know, I, I'd also ask people, go, go Watch live, uh, live Baby Live, the Wembley gig, you know, as well. Um, yeah, especially the Redux version and the updated versions with some of the sounds and some of the flourishes and the images. I mean, talk about a band having to deliver on the night of nights there. I mean, sold out Wembley. I think they had Blondie or Deborah Harry playing support. They had uh, Hot Ass Flowers, Roachford, a few others there. But, you know, it was in excess day in the UK in 91 July. And it was filmed on the same day that they did Wembley. Sorry, the same day that Wembley was, did the Live Aid gig six years earlier. So July 13th is quite a significant day, but um, that particular concert, you know, if you get the whole footage and the backstage stuff, I mean, they had Keith Richards backstage and, you know, they had, you know, who's who of everybody there. Um, you know, Keith was a big fan. He was like, you know, inside the bit of tears, CD singer, you go, in excess of a band, they're tight, they're together, I like them. Mm-hmm. You know, because Keith loved anyone who had a roots, sort of a roots in R&B or, you know, you know, or in, you know, the uh, the black soul music, you know. Yeah. Um but the Live Baby Live Wembley is a really great um, – the band are so proud of it. At the time, you know, Michael, before we went on stage, how much are we making from this gig? He said to Murphy. Murphy said, nothing, you're losing money. <laughs> well, they spent over, I think, a million and a half, two million in those days. David Mamet filmed it. Well, two years later, who filmed Zeropa in Sydney live for you too? David Mamet. You know, so uh, sorry, David Mallet, not Mamet, uh, Mallet. Um, but he filmed this. You look at the Zeropa in Sydney, it's the same footage, same cameramen, same people, um, uh, you know, that went in to, to do that. Um, because in excess saw the Wembley, went, wow, this is different filming, the, the yeah. crowds and the cameras and all sorts of stuff. It's a really great show. The band is so grateful now, they didn't make money on the day, but it's, it's their legacy point, I think. Of course, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about their legacy. Like, sorry, to talk about the legacy part of um, NXS. Um, which artists do you guys think 
influence it in excess. They, it's it's an interesting question to ask this because I feel like they're one of those bands. They're so unique sometimes that it's kind of hard to pinpoint. Say this artist influence here, but um, were there anything you guys thought of? I'll go for you first, John. I'd like to hear from the states from your point of view. Yeah, I mean, I stand by what kind of what I was saying earlier, which would be the Stones and funk music. Uh, Part of the questionnaire or the document you shared with us, Nick, included in that question is notable collaborations. And they were, I don't feel like there were many, but two of the big ones that I could think of also, I think, play into who their influences were. One was Ray Charles, which is one of the things they are most proud about. Andrew was talked about that a lot when he was with me, and I know he did with you, Hayden, as well. They are so proud of having, and Michael especially, of being able to sing with Ray Charles. And the other was Nile Rodgers. I mean, he only really produced that one, you know, um, original sin, mm-hmm. but there's a, it, there's a, they had to have seen each other as contemporaries considering Niall's background with Chic and putting his, you know, trademark guitar over funk and dance music. He had to feel some camaraderie with a band like NXS who were aspiring to do that exact thing. But we're white guys from Australia. Yeah, and there's a great footage of Daryl Hall in the studio with Niall and the band. Yeah. And the band are so young, and they—I mean, Hall and Oates, circa 1983, John. I mean, they were—they were the biggest thing on the planet they before sure Michael Jackson came along. To get Daryl Hall on backup vocals, you're like, what? Yeah, yeah um, I know. You know, it was amazing. But uh, was your question also leading towards who have they influenced as well, Nick? Was that what you were alluding to as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things I used to do, there was a the wild, I'll call them the wilderness years. Um, um, I would often go into you know, you know, Google things and try to find out you know who were covering their songs, um, or if a song and and there was a bit of a, a push in the early two thousands where some UK bands you know uh, sampling "Just Keep Walking" became a top ten hit. Mm-hmm. It's an Italian dance act, so they had a, a remix version in America in, in England. I'd call them. In excess versus party one. So it was where you took a whole band song and totally remixed the hell out of it. So you had to give credits to the band and the and the remixer. So they had a top 10, 15 hit with that. Then they had a song called Precious Heart remixed by Tall Paul in the UK for Never Tear Us Apart. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. In Australia, a band called The Rogue Traders did a song called One of My Kind, which is a remix of Need You Tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, you suddenly saw bands like, you know, The Killers come in and then um, uh, the bravery play don't change go. at concerts. And then the killer said, you know, I love In Excess. You know, without them, I wouldn't have got through this. And they loved Ice House and things. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was this sort of, I think, uh, a reappreciation for them. And then, look, Tom, you know, then we saw Tom Jones, sorry, Tom Jones. Well, yeah, Tom Jones did it with Natalie Imbruglia, a cover of Never Tear Us Apart. And then you saw American Idol take certain songs. And then in Australia, about five, six years ago, uh, Bruce Springsteen came out and did an Australian song in each state. And you might know the Just Like Firewood from The Saints, uh, which he put on one of his albums um, as a single. He did that in Brisbane. But in Sydney, where NXS is from, he did Don't Change with Tommy Morello and Little Stevie, which is I saw great. that on YouTube, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And I think over the journey, you know, we've seen guys like Pat Monaghan. You look at a song like Hey Soul Sister, where there's that lyric, you're one of my kind. Mm-hmm. You know, he takes the – he said, I took that from Needed Tonight. Good. And then you see um, – uh, you know, Rob Thomas, who always comes to Australia, and then suddenly Andrew and the, like, the whole band came out and did a support of Rob Thomas or Matchbox 20 for the last two songs one night. It's on YouTube. They do Never Tear Us Apart and Don't Change. And wow. Rob Thomas, weirdly enough, gave guest vocals of a remix version of Original Sin 
off the re- Redux covers album they did of themselves, mm-hmm. and that went number one in America on the dance charts. And then Tricky, you might know Tricky from your uh, Tricky, you know, Massive yeah. Attack. Matt, he uh-huh. does a fantastic version of Mediate. Um, I think I knew the, that. Okay, I so Ooh, in good. 2000, okay. 2010, Inexcess went into the studio and John Farris re-recorded all of their old songs within an album. And I'll send it to you, but Tricky came on and did guest vocals for Mediate, and it's fantastic. It went top five in America on the okay. dance charts. Cool. Um, so I think over time what's given me a little bit of positivity is seeing the influence of things. You two, when you two come to Australia, they always pick summer. And it's always November, December. And invariably they're playing live on the date that Michael died. And in November 19, sorry, November 22, 2019 in Sydney, happened to be playing there at the same time. And they played the song Bad, but they changed the lyrics to Never Tear Us Apart in the last wow. three minutes. Wow. And it's fantastic. You know, so I guess over time there's been this, I think, gradual respect and gradual bands come in and, and acknowledge things. Um, I mean, Adele nearly put Never Tear Us Apart on her 30 album. I think, and I think, don't, I think, uh, uh, what's we call it? Uh, Gwen Stefani, no doubt. Instead of It's My Life from, you know, um, I remember this, great, I've heard this great podcast, Mark, uh, Mark uh, sorry, John on um, the Mark late Hollis. Uh, Mark Hollis. Fantastic yeah. episode. I love, love, uh, love them. But uh, I think uh, on the No Doubt Greatest Hits, they, they recorded Don't Change and It's My Life and the recording studio, sorry, I think the record company had, was cheaper to get It's My Life than Don't Change. I've heard this story, yeah. Yeah. Great. You know, this, I mean, even bands like AFI that do Don't Change Life. Um, yeah. They did a whole album of the Kick covers with, his, with St. Vincent and a bunch of others. Have you seen that? No, I don't think oh, I knew about this. Beck, Beck, Beck's got a thing called Beck's Music Club, and they pick an album to learn and record over a course of a week. Wow. Right? Where would I find that? Go to YouTube. Go Beck, Kick, uh, re-released, right? Okay. And this okay. is about eight years ago. And he and a bunch of musician friends of his learned all the songs to Kick over a seven-day period. And so you see them learning them, filming it, <coughs> filming it. You know, it was a band that I thought that sounds a lot like, um, or not sounds like a lot, but they're very, I think, in the same, I guess, spirit as an excess. And I would love to hear his take. And I know some people cough Hector will get very bad. But I think (laughs) Imagine Dragons, in many ways, embodies a lot of the same characteristics as an excess. And I don't know if I'm way off. I could probably speak to that, actually. Hi, John. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned I was trying to think of bands who are obviously influenced by an excess, and nothing was coming to mind. But when you said the Killers, that really hit me. The Killers, as people may or may not know, the Killers and Imagine Dragons are both have members who are Mormon yep. and some members who are from Utah. And as I've said on my show several times, Utah is a hotbed. Believe it or not, Utah is a hotbed for alternative rock, especially '80s alternative rock. Absolutely. I'm interviewing Howard Jones tomorrow morning, and he <clears throat> is still gigantic in Utah, and he knows it. So while I don't know if it's obvious that there's a connection between Imagine Dragons and NXS, I know because I know the culture those two guys came from, that they were absolutely influenced by NXS. Brandon Flowers and Dan Johnson. Dan, what's his name? Anyway, Dan Reynolds. Reynolds, that's it grew up listening to NXS as deeply as I do. I know that for a fact. So, yes, that's a good call, Nick. 
I just think their I melodies, think, yeah. the way that they structure the songs and like, I feel like in excess in many ways, like they're big hits, at least they were like anthems. Right. And I feel like I that's, see that in many ways, like the killers, especially <clears throat> and imagine dragons, they build a lot of their songs on these like choruses that you could easily translate into. And the mixing of rock music with some danciness, you know, with exactly. some backbeat to it. Yeah. I and can see that. Great, some of the great songs escalate from a, Michael's quite good on certain songs of having a soft, almost um, uh, lower register, register lyric and vocal. And by the end of it, it was the same lyric, but sung at a higher register. And it took you on this emotional climb. Songs like The Stairs, Not Enough Time, um, uh, Freedom Deep, some of these sort of lesser-known tracks. He's very good at that, taking a song from a, a certain base level of, of, of tone and key and really ramping up over the course of a song. And I think, you know, some of the bands have that sort of template, you know, that to keep an audience entertained, you know, you have to have some structure with a verse, a chorus, a bridge with an anthemic end. Um, and it wouldn't be surprising the bands, like look at the Beatles and Crowded House, John, I know one of your favourites, yeah. Neil Finn, you know. I mean, yeah. uh, took a template but made it his own, you know, but the, the, the three-minute ballad song was a template that was embodied and probably almost exceeded by Neil, you know. Yeah, good point. That, that is a great point. Let's talk about one of my favorite uh, questions asked every guest when we do artist episodes, and that's favorite songs. So, like, you would essentially make a mixtape of in excess songs. So, I'm going to ask you each pick five or six songs that you think it, it could be favorites. It could be the hits. I don't. I don't care. Um, songs that you think, if someone needs to be introduced in excess, these are the songs that you would select for this person. So I've, I have two categories because I think when we've done this before, we've done the five songs that are that are the essential in excess and then the five additional songs that you love that you, you would be in your own personal edition, uh, essential in excess. The deeper cuts. The deeper cuts, yes. So to me, the five essential in excess songs would be Don't Change, What You, what you Need, Need You Tonight, Never Tear Us Apart, and I included Suicide Blonde. Um, it, I don't know that it's as essential maybe as some other songs, but I wanted to I wanted to include something that would expand the mm-hmm. peak period, I guess, so to speak, of NXS, so you could draw from a lot of things. My personal um, best of would include Disappear, which is my very favorite NXS song, Not Enough Time, which is probably my third favorite in excess song. Oh yeah. The one thing, which is probably my second favorite. So those two are interchangeable. I really like the messenger, which is off of uh, full moon, dirty hearts. I will admit it's a little bit one note. It's kind of like Bowie's rebel rebel, which is a really good riff sort of on a loop, almost the whole thing, but I think it rocks. I really like it short and sweet. And then I would include good times from the lost boys soundtrack. Um, it's a cover, but I think it's such an effective cover, and it speaks to that groovy stonesiness that uh, that I've been talking about this whole time. Believe me, I could include a dozen more songs for with a dozen other good reasons, but those five would probably be on the next layer of essenti- essentiality, if that's a rude a word, essentialness, whatever. I'm, it, it's it's a word now. We're inventing words on the podcast. We are. Now. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> I love it, John. Um, those are some excellent, excellent songs. 
So Hayden, let's ask you like your five essential songs and then five deeper cuts. I know this is like kind of like Sophie's choice because you this could be hard for Hayden. I'm curious. It excess podcast, so it's like I'm now more curious than ever. Yeah, I'll give it from an Australian perspective a little bit because um, we we had a bit of a career with them in terms of depth of singles and videos that didn't all get released at the same time frame as overseas. So, uh, you know, the first couple of albums obviously had some notable songs like Just Keep Walking and um, Stay Young that really are quite well known now. But um, I think, you know, you could probably interchange here one thing and don't change of a quite seminal uh, in terms of regular play uh, because of the video and the songs themselves. Original Sin here was the game changer in Australia. They went from cult sort of cool band up and coming to national treasures on one song. Um, it led if to I'm the honest about sound. it, that should probably replace Suicide Blonde on my list, but I wanted to expand a little bit more. In the- but it's it stiffed in America because of the sensitivity of the lyric. Um, here it was just this funky groove tune with Niall Rogers and the band and Michael up front in the video and just this translation from <clears throat> sort of an undercover, undercurrent, under, underground band into the mainstream. So Original Sin took them through Europe and South America particularly, into the international consciousness. Um, another song off the same album that's still played a lot here that probably is <laughs> a little bit underrated um, overseas is Burn For You. Mm-hmm. Um, the video is the first one from Richard Lowenstein. Tilt um, <clears throat> My Hat Out The Sun, The Shadows, uh, They Burn Down, Love Me and I'll Burn For You. I mean, the lyric and the vocal and, and the sentiment uh, it was a top three hit here. It really prolonged the album to be in the charts. You know, you know when a third single or fourth single, John, goes like that. This was like pour some sugar on me. It took the the unit shift up from a hundred thousand here to three hundred. Yeah. It cre- it created depth uh, in the um, in the album to have a two year stay in our charts. Um, obviously, what you need uh, again was just this change, this real funk sound. Uh, Big here, big overseas, et cetera, there. Um, in Australia, you know, Never Tear Us Apart is everywhere. And New Sensation probably is more popular here than Need You Tonight. Um, oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, really? I mean, Need You popular, but we would probably hear New Sensation a little more on the radio than Need You Tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes programmers don't play it always because it's got media and they can't, you know, oh, do I play both, you know. so But Need You Tonight is still popular and still gets sampled all the time and, do a leap of sample and things, but probably new sensations and Devil Inside. I mean, <laughs> probably I probably can't limit it. It's hard for these zeitgeist songs because they are really played every hour on Australian radio. In terms I have one of confession her, to make: I yeah. have never liked Devil Inside. I don't know why. There's something off-putting about that guitar lick to me. I mean, if it comes on the radio, I'll probably change the channel. I. I love them, but I have never warmed to that song. Is it song. the forbidden lyric, uh, John? Or? I've wondered the exact same thing, Hayden. It's interesting you say that. I wonder if it's something about, you know, my Mormon religious upbringing that makes it sort of seem a little too scary or off-putting. Something about it rubs me the wrong way. I've never liked that song. Okay. It's not a tempting song. No. All right. Um, probably five deep cuts, deep tracks, songs that – that uh, probably are sort of readily played. I mean, I'll echo sort of John on not enough time. It was a hit in America. We're we're putting a campaign in Australia together to make it a hit. We've got a we've got a bit of a goal to try get not enough time to be a hit in Australia because we think it's this hit in America that no one in Australia knows. Mm-hmm. So we're working on something to try uh, celebrate 
in excess of 30th anniversary of Welcome This Year. So I'll keep you posted on that. Yeah. Um, but probably the songs, The Stairs is a song that just sort of hit me 10, 15 years after I first heard it. Um, and it's the middle lyrics where, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, the nature of your tragedy has changed around your neck. Do you lead or are you led or are you sure you don't care? Um, the, you know, the lyric itself really is is a really, it probably should have been the first single off X because it was a more serious song. It was you more of a musical so? statement. I don't well, know if it, that would have flown over here. It probably wouldn't have, but it, it was a song with a message and it probably, a video is great and, um, but there's never a single. It was only a single in Holland on the Live Baby Live Dutch release, you know. Um, Freedom D by Love, I think it's I in too. excess of Beck's yep. best sort of U2 moment. It has a similar uh, percussion sound to I Will Follow, mm-hmm. but it has a real Peter Gabriel world music sound with a vocal climb and a lyrical climb. Mm-hmm. Um, everything off Elegantly Wasted. The film clip's fantastic, mm-hmm. uh, shot in LA. The, the lyric's great. Michael's happy, the happiest we see Michael in the last moments of his uh, recording life. Uh, there's a song called Deepest Red, which was a, a B-side deep cut from the X album. Uh, it was a B-side for Heaven Sent, which was the first single in Australia and in England. Uh, it's a John uh, Michael composition. Uh, it's their best B-side they have. We all know bands and fans have favourite B-sides. And there's a song of uh, Elegantly Wasted called We're Thrown Together that combines a little Good bit one. of the uh, sitar music and it's yes. a real climber. I think it, it has – it really shows a desperate man but a climb and trying to be in a relationship and we're thrown together and it – feels like a portents of his life, you know? Beautiful song. I agree. That is yeah. a beautiful song. The one thing with NXS is that they, they, were, they weren't all killer and, and no filler. Sorry, no, sorry, I should say it the other way around. They, they weren't just killer and filler. Um, sometimes I look at something the Aerosmith, who, you know, Ray Aerosmith and their recovery, but they needed Desmond Child and other songwriters to help them and they'd have four or five pretty good strong songs off Pump or off their albums, but there's a lot of filler on them. I, I felt NXS... They never knew what song would be a single, so they gave each song its craft and time and energy and they didn't sort of, pardon the pun, throw songs together just willy-nilly. They wanted to make albums and they wanted every song to matter and they often picked from 15, 20, 30 songs to to net it down and each album was important. And and I think some of the fans we've tried to encourage, go back and listen to the non-hits. We've created a Spotify playlist, uh, John and Nick, that we've done with every album we, we actually uh, review. We say, okay, we're adding three songs B that we agree on that weren't singles we're putting onto a Spotify playlist. And this is this new in excess album that you can listen to that aren't the hits that we think are valuable songs, etc. There's the best song they have that was a six, seven single in Australia or a video single that's their best, deepest cut. And it's a, um, it's a song off the swing album called Love Is and then the, the main sort of lyrics called What I Say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sounds nothing like in excess. It's it's called Love Is and it's called What I Say, and it's uh, fantastic. Uh, play it three times. I love the way he sings What I Say. What I, I Say Now. Oh, yeah, and and it's got this real keyboardy 84 loop, but it's beautiful and, and it's anthemic and it's probably our favourite deep track. You, you guys picked some really excellent songs. I'm just going to add three that I don't think were mentioned because you guys had every other song that I had. Um, this time... I always love that Good song. One, yeah. Listen Like Thieves is also one that I crank it up every time it's on because I think yeah. that's such an underrated song. And then the other one was By My Side from X. I think that's a really great song as well. 
It's a big oh, hit in Europe, big hit in Australia. Uh, they didn't release a single in America, which was strange. Like you said something very early earlier, John was smart. He said, I think through the tears that they'd run out of gas. And but had six top ten hits in a row between Kick and X, and then the third single off X was Bitter Tears, mm-hmm. hit forty six, and it was like the beginning of the end off X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just uh, well, even Disappear, I think, was the second single off X, and it underperformed. Oh, number eight, number eight, wasn't Did it? Hit number eight, okay. Hit eight, yeah. Suicide okay. Blonde hit nine, and 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 Disappear hit eight because I know John was very proud of that beating Suicide Blonde by a spot. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean the. I thought the By My Side one was a great film clip, the Sydney Opera House with the, the orchestra and Michael in this beautiful purple suit and the band all dressed up. It would have been a hit if it had been given some airplay in Europe. But it might, sorry, in America, it may have given that album a lift. But, again, I think these are these record company decisions that bands that you've interviewed, John, and, and, and different people you've interviewed for years mm-hmm. have said, if I just had a bit more support from the record label, you know, and yeah. a song is a collaborative effort, isn't it, you know? A hit. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. You guys had some really great songs and I'm going to try to make a Spotify playlist of all these songs. <laughs> so it's funny that you betcha because usually I do it for every episode for my own um, show because I think it's important to also listen to the music beyond um, talking about the music. I'm just going to list some awards and some best of lists that NXS has been on. So that's going to lead us to the last question. Um, so they were inducted into the Australian Recorded Industry Association's Hall of Fame in 2001. They were nominated for three Grammy Awards. They won five MTV Video Music Awards, all of which were for Need You Tonight. They won for Video of the Year, Viewer's Choice, Group Video, Breakthrough Video, Edit, and they swept that year that they that they um, won for that video. Uh, the Brit Awards, they won for Best International Group and Best International Male Performer in 1981. And Rolling Stone, um, my love-hate relationship with that publication, when they updated their 500 Greatest Songs list last year, Never Tears Apart made its first entry. And what number yeah. do you guys think it was at, out of curiosity? Three, 372, maybe? Hot, way know. higher. A lot a higher. Uh, 493. Oh, no, higher, like like in the oh, ranking oh, in terms oh. of like, was it like, two, Was it the high 200s, I think? Uh, yeah, it's 282. 282. And you had to come to twos in it. Yeah. And that's that's an example where a song reevaluated years later because it culturally still relevant gets a second wind. Absolutely. You know? Exactly. And, and these days, I mean, you probably remember Moby coming out in the year 2000 with Play, and he copped a lot of backlash because he had all these great songs, but he put them all in ads. Mm-hmm. But I have no issue anymore with bands licensing material to anything. Bands have been shafted by record labels, by streaming services. The band can sell out by putting something on a streaming service or put it through an ad or a movie. I'm into it because these guys have been shafted. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Whatever gets their music to people, I really don't care. Correct. That's how I I look at it. And and like you said, guys said before, if so-and-so is fine with it, how can I be mad? about it. Yeah, That's I, just think, I think with excess, they don't want their music attached to things they don't believe in. There's certain taste, certain things, yeah. but if it's licensed to something there, they, they, they generally have decisions by committees yep. and go, yep, we'll let it for that. And there's plenty of things I don't let them have it yep. for. But, uh, yep. um, yeah, they got inducted the first year of eligibility in 2001 in Australia. Um, and there was normally a 20-year gestation period between your first recording, I think it was, and then your eligibility. So I think they just nipped it in the bud. Um but that was a big thing for them in Australia and their home country and things like that. Um, I think also what's one of the awards that I 
look back proudly, it was in 86, they were voted, I think, by Musician Magazine that as or Musician Magazine at the time, it's a bit of a, a Bible to true musicianship as the best uh, live band on the planet that year. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when they listen like Thieves stuff, they were touring what they were doing in South America and through Europe and America, just being able to get out and play. And often those magazines like to pick the air apparent, so that was the band on the cusp. So I know you two got on the front of uh, Time magazine in 87, but NXS got on the front of Musician magazine in 86. So. Yeah. That's so awesome. This actually leads me to another Hall of Fame, and this is like the big question. <laughs> um, so NXS were first eligible for induction to the Rock Roll Hall of Fame in 2006. So they've been eligible for 16 years now. I think my math is correct. Um, so why do you do? You, first of all, I'm just going to ask. They should be in the Hall of Fame, right? I think so. Oh, yeah. I almost feel like that that honor has to be prefaced with a re realization of their inherent awesomeness first <laughs> i think that you know i don't well, think i mean we established wanna, they right. don't even get the credit they deserve in the first place let alone well, in except you know rock hall discussions well if, if it if it's if it's the end point of a uh, rejuvenation for the catalog and appreciation whether it's through a documentary a movie soundtrack um you know a, a song that reappears in something like kate bush or whatever you know, let, let's look at Kate Bush. You know, this this song, Soaring, only can help her chances next year. She's nominated every couple of years. Mm-hmm. So if there's a, a bit of a groundswell, I don't think they'd want it to be tokenism. I mean, there's nothing no. worse than seeing a 60s, 70s band tokenistically inducted because there's only one surviving member or, mm-hmm. you know, they're doing it out of tokenism. You'd like to think it's done through merit. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit mm-hmm. of a believer that, you know, they were the biggest band and I think had that sort of critical and commercial intersection in 88 that it wasn't just a commercial achievement. They had a critical achievement. The MTV Awards at that particular time in social culture were bigger than the Grammys, you know. That was the place to be, you know. there were. If you look at the who won the Grammy Awards in 88, and no disrespect to Tracy Chapman, but she was, I mean, she had a great album, whatever there, but Bobby McFerrin, Don't Worry, Be Happy, won <laughs> Song of the Year or something like that. Come on. Well, the you know, Grammys... Like the yeah. MTV awards were like where the cultural moment was. Like, yeah, like what I was think hot so. September, they were the awards in late September '88, and the Grammys were in January of '89. So you've got a three month differential there. Now, how in any sane planet do you give the best L, the best video of the year in excess and not nominate it for an, a Grammy? I mean, that it tells you. That's what I've looked back in hindsight and going. They didn't even get a nomination. Like that's yeah. that's like saying the best picture of the movies is this, and then next. Next next month at the bloody Blockbuster Awards, it's mm-hmm. it's not even nominated. It, it made no sense. So, yeah. but I think the eighty eight, you know, I think the MTV, sorry, the MTV Awards between eighty five and about ninety two, were culturally relevant. Nowadays, they're just oh, yeah. they're just turgid, you know, yeah. and and horrible. Yeah, absolutely. They gen- generally, are. I I think in excess. I mean, if you look at it as an international act, I think that they are among the most best selling. Bands not in the Hall of Fame. They have sales of 80 million records worldwide, and they're the third yeah. uh, best-selling Australian act. The only two yeah. that are ahead of them are the Bee Gees and ACDC. And I think, and with, just um, quickly with that, they're home. They're born and homegrown. ACDC, you know, had a Scottish heritage, and same with um, the mm-hmm. Bee Gees, a British heritage. And we 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 claim them as our own, and they made their careers here first. So we think that's a a legitimate tag to call them Australian because the Bee Gees. And ACDC were hits here first, and we exported them. Um, but Phoenix is born and bred. Yeah, they're 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 third in that overall list. But 
Sorry, it would be I just want to get that in. It'd be interesting to me is to see what would happen if they got a nomination. I think a lot of the times bands get nominations, but everyone knows they probably aren't going to make it. But to see what conversation coalesced around a nomination. I know? would... I'm yeah. going to make a very bold statement. If an excess, Please. I think they're going to get nominated in the next five years. They're about there. This is at, so what this year's um, class told me is like, cause someone who writes about this and podcasts a lot about it is that down the eighties are front and center. Like you have your, the Eurythmics, Duran Duran uh, and uh, Lionel Richie. And I, there's a few others that I can't think of offhand, but the point is that they're in the eighties right now, like knee deep in the eighties. Yeah, Houston and, the other year. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the go-go's and um, so many others. And what the thing about in excess is they are probably the next big populist new wave or alternative act of that like eighties, mm-hmm. nineties era. And they're, gonna come up sooner or later now that a lot of these bands that their contemporaries are now in or have been on ballots it's just a matter of time and their music is just too well known to be ignored to for much longer and i don't know it just feels like now the emphasis is on commercialism with the rock hall and this is a hugely commercially successful band that Mm -hmm. is era defining in so many ways they they were among the most well-known mtv they their songs still get played everywhere like you could hear 10 of their songs on radio or advertisements or movies and they still feel timeless so i don't know i just feel like they're i think yeah I, I think if they get nominated i don't think they're going to be one of these bands that have to get nominated seven times to be recognized i think like duran duran they've been nominated once and they're getting in i think they'll look at it as an oversight and i think once they're nominated i think they should get a passage in because i go geez this one slipped through the cracks we let's not string this out any longer well i was going to say i could see something happening to them similar to like a pat benatar pat benatar makes gets nominated And everyone's like, oh, of course, Pat Benatar. And then she doesn't get in and everyone's up in arms. And so the next time she's nominated, we got to get this right this time. Of course, Pat. And I could see something like that happening to NXS. I think. Yeah, I think that she's had the issue with Neil Gerardo, who writes the songs, hasn't she? And she said that, should he get in? You know, they're a duo, but, you know, she was front and center, the artist. So. But you're probably right. I mean, I just don't think they'll they'll need a Shaka Khan, Rufus sort of, or a, or a Sheik not. sort of uh, waiting list. Mm-hmm. Hope not. We'll all be gone under the yeah. grave by then. True. I, True. I would make a bold statement on them too, is they would be number one on the fan vote. They have such a strong right. fan base and a very fanatical fan base. They like a Duran Duran that they would, if they're not number one, they're number two or three. Like they're like right there. And I think it, and they appeal to the classic rock audience side, the new wave side, the, the straight rock and roll side. They, they, and that's, I think also why I think they would do well and they would get in on their first nominations because they're all encompassing. Like their sound is the blues and then new wave and then rock and then soul. And it's, it's all encompassing. Like you said before, Hayden. And I just think that they're going to look at the bands who defined MTV. Now that John Sykes is in charge and he was like the head of MTV. And this was a band that helped make them a legendary channel. And the hits still Won resonate. Their award. <laughs> yeah, Won their but, MTV but they're not yeah. like the flash in the pan. Like, no, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to name bands because I don't want to. No, 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 no. But 
But no, but there's, just, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, I think there's, I think one thing that I, we look back and we look at it forensically and go, they were truly an international band as well. And I think if there is a, a knock on the Rock Hall of Fame, it is American centric. Oh, yeah. And it takes a lot of the other bands and artists from overseas a very difficult way to get a look in. Um, I mean, you, you, John, you spent some time in the early 90s in the UK and you would know what, you know, a guy like Paul Weller is to the uh, the yeah, UK, uh, how significant the jam are and different things like that and madness and some of that uh, early 80s stuff there and just intrinsic stuff there. There's certain iconic bands. I mean, Crowded House, they're never going to get nominated, yet Neil Finn is one of the greatest songwriters on the planet, so much so that Fleetwood Mac got him. You know, they should get him in on, his, on him alone for what he's done with Split Ends, let alone Crowded House, you know. So the, the the overseas reach and international look beneath the lens, I know they've got a few subcategories where you don't have to be a band or into the actual Hall of Fame as a band. You can go into special achievement and things, but... I think that's just one knock that we do feel a little bit, a bit abroad that there's not a deeper emphasis uh, on, you know, the real, I mean, look, look at Joy Division, you know, and New Order and these bands. I mean, there's some real significant ones out there that still also haven't been nominated or inducted yet. Um, sure. And at the end of the day, you can't have everybody, but I still think some of the selections are dubious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I still think that, you know, there's this, there's this and, you know, I, I tend to think that not here to... F- uh, put things in silos, but you know we are now looking at Dolly Parton and Whitney Houston, and maybe Tina Turner has a more rock element to it. But you know you you, you can be in country and other rock hall of fames if you genuinely like Ray, Ray Charles deserves to be in all of them because he wrote albums oh, yeah. that were intrinsic to all of those styles. I just don't think Whitney Houston has a great guitar break in any of her songs, so I just look at it on that basis that she probably doesn't deserve to be in. Well, that's an opinion I, rather than a fact. I uh, I understand what you mean. If we could take one small tangent. To me, Whitney belongs in, in the same, for the same reasons Aretha Franklin belonged in. Absolutely. Aretha Franklin was the voice of her generation. She may not have written all of those songs, but she interpreted them in a way that holds up today. Whitney, and I think about this a lot because to me, someone like Linda Ronstadt doesn't belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for similar reasons. She didn't write most of her music, but I have to go back. If Aretha Franklin's voice alone is what, and her impact on culture is what made her worthy of the Rock Hall, then Whitney Houston, by that same measure, belongs in there. You know, that's my feeling. That's how I've justified this same issue in my mind. Yeah, it's there's no big. right or wrong answer. That's the the great thing about this. There's, there's um, I, I I think what what I've probably taken it sort of the NXS way is that by introducing all these other genres that aren't strictly rock and roll, we're now putting other bands to the back of the queue that were maybe more legitimate. That's probably the the superficial you know argument that I have that is now delaying other bands who were legitimately rock and roll in that sort of silo. Given these other artists have all had their recognition of the Soul Train Awards, and R&B and country and whatever, they've, they've, they've had their stuff highly recognised. So it's a bit like uh, interloping, but it's, it's a vexed argument. There's so many elements and layers to it, you know? I think also, too, in the last decade, it's on HBO, the, the induction ceremony. So there's a commercial side, too. Like, sure. you had to have a marquee name lineup, and that's what this – these classes have told me in the last like five years, but especially last or really this year and last year, it's like, these are HBO ready names. And I think NXS would be uh, there too. It's a household name that 
you don't have to convince someone why they should be in there. You're like, oh, okay, perfect. And then you could have the tribute performances. Um, and that actually leads me to actually my last question was to ask you guys, um, who do you think would induct um, in excess if and when they get inducted? Well, this is a topic we've had on our podcast because, as you know, oh. over 108 over 108 episodes, you have to go off on a tangent to fill content. Um, so we, uh, on our Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, episode over there, we talked about the likely luminaries and we came up with a few different names that may be there for various reasons, okay? Um, uh, and no particular order on these, okay? Rob Thomas... I think has some involvement with the rock. No, just hear me out here, Nick. <laughs> You're shaking your head. <laughs> Don't be surprised. He's up to Chicago. He's up uh-huh. yeah, to Chicago. He's what? He's up to Chicago, did he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Here's the thing. He's a champion for the band in terms of, you know, you know, if you hear one of his songs, um, uh, Give Me the Reason, he's taken an NXS riff, um, one of his last, you know, solo albums. He's a bit of a champion of the course. Pat Monaghan from Train, who will probably try to be look at their career and maybe a possible rock and roll nomination. Not saying they deserve it or not, but he might be somebody there who, again, has who sung Beautiful Girl on the Redux version, the recar version. You've got Bono, who would love to attach himself to any big celebration that relates to Michael uh, and would love to be front and centre sort of with that uh, uh, in terms of those sort of possibilities. Um uh, you know, Mark Opitz was one from here we would love, but he's probably not as international to probably have the, the recognition there. Um, and then, you you know, look at the younger bands like The Killers and Brandon Flowers, and often to me what it is, it's it's actually someone who does it who's, you look at, you know, Ketis did the the, 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 the talk, Talking Heads and gave, gave some shit to Guns N' Roses. It's a very funny speech. But he, it's almost an heir apparent. You get to nominate someone when you're five years out. So... They may take someone with a modern-day influence that relates to the audience listenership like The Killers um, who might be five years away from induction and it's sort of almost part of their pedigree to nominate someone who they're motivated by but also showcase themselves. Because I think Nine Inch Nails inducted The Cure, didn't he, uh, Trent Reznor? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, suddenly a couple of years later what happens? You know, Trent goes along, oh, I don't really want to do this, I hate the Rock and Roll of Fame. I've heard him interviewed later on. He goes, oh, actually, it wasn't that bad. The experience was pretty good. It got me used to what it was all about. Oh, I'm happy to be in the Hall of Fame, you know. So it's their way of sort of, I think, uh, uh, grooming you for your own nomination. So um, that could happen. Um, I think, you know, personally, I would love to see Bono, Simon Le Bon and Michael Stipe do it as three contemporaries of Michael. They all really like Michael. Simon Le Bon in the Duran Duran days, came down to Australia and heard original sin on the radio and goes, who the hell is that? Who's this band? Forced our industry to find out who the singer in the band was. 12, 18 months later, you got The Reflex, you've got Wild Boys, you've got all these other uh, notorious Noel Rogers songs. Where did that come? He had original sin. Mm-hmm. Simon and Michael, great buddies. Michael Stipe, you know, you know, met Michael through Bono. Bono, it'd be great to have them up there potentially, as saying, "Well, look, you know, he's he's one of our guys of our era. This is what he did for us. This is what he did for the scene. This is what was not recognised. This is what we'd like to pay homage to." Having a, a triple thread of his illuminary peers of the time. That's personally me. Mm. Um, but I, I, I'm fascinated by other people's opinions on that question, Nick. <laughs> John, who do you think uh, would induct an excess? I had a lot of the same thoughts. I think uh, let's get Noel, Di- Noel Gallagher to do it. That would be <laughs> uh, a nice turnaround, I think. Um, I had the same thought about Bono. I do think you're right. Brandon Flowers 
or maybe someone like Chris Martin from Coldplay, although... The other one, sorry, Noel Rogers, I forgot to say. Sorry, yeah, Joe. Uh, Noel could be my, relevant. Sorry. Niall's on my I, list, okay. too. Nope, yeah. I agree. So, yeah, Niall, or, and I was thinking, like you were saying, contem- uh, younger contemporaries, Brandon Flowers, someone like Chris Martin. I don't know how, what a good public speaker Chris Martin is, but... He that's a Peter Gabriel. Opinion. Oh, he did? Okay, well, yeah. good. Then I could see something like that. The other one that I thought of, um, I don't think it would ever happen. There's a reason I'm thinking this. Neil Young. And the reason for that is because I know Michael was a big fan. I remember the year after they won the VMA, the Video Music Award, he gave out the Video of the Year Award at the MTV Award Show, and it went to Neil Young. And I remember the look on his face because this, as Aiden was saying, this used to be appointment television. Watch this. Michael comes out. First of all, his hair is short. He doesn't look like the Michael that was in the Need You Tonight video and the glasses and everything. And he reads the winner and he gets a big smile on his face. He goes, oh, yeah, Neil Young, you know. And so uh, seeing the joy that he had in announcing Neil Young winning this video of the year award. It would be interesting to see Neil Young induct him. Uh, that may be the only connection those two people even have with each other. I have no idea. Yeah. Just, it, it would was, be kind of a cool yeah. roundabout. And it was such a, a great moment because Michael had the fist out when he's happy. And, and you know, the song was This Note's For You. So it was a real yep. anti-establishment advertising yeah. ad. You know, I'm not singing for Pepsi. I'm not singing for Coke. You know, yeah. um, a great moment. Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent, excellent sort of idea. It sort of ties it in. The Noel Gallagher one would be great, actually, in the sense, because that could also accelerate Oasis, because Oasis deserve it on, on the basis of what they did I totally and where they were, and it could be a sort of a way of them getting themselves uh, in the front and centre Although uh, uh, consciousness, you know? Oasis yep. with the Rock Hall. Okay, so I, I think they should have been in first year a few years ago, but I support their induction because it would be the hottest of hot messes for the Rock Hall. <laughs> and, like, I they thought it. Dire Straits was, like, a nightmare, and, like, Radiohead, oh, they haven't seen anything until um, Oasis gets it, which they will get yeah. it. Um, yeah. One more thing. I did think Kylie Minogue, but I didn't know if she would be enough yeah. of a name over here but that could oh. be a nice tribute by the way i think she's she she had a lot of chart success in the 21st century like yeah that might be too close to the connection the you know that they were together i don't know but i did think kylie well. I, you know That's it's really weird I, I i love the noel gallagher idea mm-hmm. I, I i you know because it's a real mending of the bridges of an immature brit brit Brit, uh, you know, brat, a uh, brat pack, <laughs> Brit pop, um, as a way of saying, hey, listen, you know what? I, uh, many years ago, I famously loved it. I want to recognize this because they, they loved it, except they liked it, excess and whatever. There, it was just a couple of brats on the stage taking the piss, you know. Yeah. They, I mean, they threw that Absolutely. award that night into, into the crowd or something like that, or into the Thames or whatever. They didn't care about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's why he was the first name that came to my mind. <laughs> that's, yeah, fix all that's, that. That would be a good like um, full circle, uh, like said that like presented an award to to them, uh, like the Rock Hall. Um, the so last year I attended the ceremony in Cleveland. Something that struck me about a lot of the presenters were they were huge names. Like you had um, Dave Chappelle, you had Paul McCartney, you had Drew Barrymore, you had like a like a lot of like really super famous people, and I think Bono would be the one that they would get it. He would be probably the one to do it because I think th- something that NXS lacks, and don't take take offense to what I'm going to say, Hayden, but I think they remind me a lot of Def Leppard from a few years ago, where they need a 
like a peer, but someone who's like super like well-regarded to kind of legitimize them. And that's why when, when Def Leppard were announced to get in, I said, it's going to be Brian May. They're like indebted to Queen and Bohemian Rhapsody came out and this and that, but they need that like legitimacy to their legacy. Like they need the rock hall more than the other way around. It's a very interesting point, Nick. I never, ever thought of that. It's a very, fairly sort of salient point because Bono can also speak not just to the Michael experience, he can also speak to the band and the peers and things we we leverage from them and give them a bit of due. Because there was, I mean, they were toted between 85 and 89 and 90, 91. They were the two quite big heavyweights in that scene. Absolutely. And even in the band's books that you read, both bands, oh, yeah, we bumped each other at airports and what are you releasing, what are you doing? They're always stealing from each other ideas. They're competing for the same market space, the same audience, the same buying audience and things. So I think Bono would bring three things, the Michael relationship, the band significance, and that echelon of, wow, oh, wow, he's saying it, yeah, 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 you know? Agreed. And I can even see a scenario yeah, too where stuck in a moment you can't get out of his performance. Oh. Too. So yeah. and that's an HBO ready moment. So like that's what like I, I'm very cynical sometimes, like it like of how like what I want versus what I think they'll do. And I feel like they, Bono would be the first and probably the only choice that they would go with. And then they could probably either have him perform with the members of an excess or at least <clears throat> you two open the show with one of their songs and then induct. An yeah, we, we've thought about the song list and who would play and whatever and play. It's, it's interesting. Mark Opitz said on a podcast, he said, if ever got inducted, they won't play. And I surprised that he goes, oh, Kirk won't do it. And, you know, I know Kirk, who we've, I've interviewed there, he got up at our grand final, our, one of our equivalents of the Super Bowl, the NRL rugby. And we've got a lady in Australia called Amy Shark, who's quite a, uh, a well-known singer selling lots of units here. She's like an Alanis Morissette of the 2022s. Um, bit folkier. But uh, she, her material doesn't lend itself to stadiums, but she decided to do a cover of Never Tear Us Apart and then Kirk pops out from behind, you know, the screen and is playing the saxophone. Mm. And he actually said on our interview not long after that uh, scenario, about a month after he did it, I was really nervous. You know, I haven't played for a long time and blah, blah, blah. And, um, he's really he's married to a lady called Lane Beachley, who's a seven-time uh, world swimming, sorry, world surfing champion, mm-hmm. uh, and they're really happy and they've got a new life, whatever. They, you know, band won't tour again, all that sort of stuff. I sort of think though that I couldn't help but think that they would get out and play on the night of their induction and find a way. And whether it was a couple of guest singers who were there that night to sing some things along. Given they were alive back and that was their their one wood, you'd think they would do something because especially those inductions those nights, they're much better when the band sings. Mm-hmm. Even Blondie, who, the, you know, the guitarist, are we going to play? No, 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 but the new band. Remember that? <laughs> oh, that's like the most cringeworthy oh, moment ever. Yeah. But it's so, it's so uncomfortable. It's like you shouldn't see this. Enshrined, isn't it? It's like a car accident. Like you want to turn away, but you can't. And it's yeah. like, oh, it's, it's that that's crazy. But I think it excess too because they have so many hits that are well-known, I think they also serve well for a melody. So you could have a lot of guest singers that could yeah. come in. Yeah. Like the ones you mentioned as potential doctors mm-hmm. who actually inducted a lot of people over the years, like Journey and um, mm-hmm. Chicago and so on. Uh, yeah, I think that you could easily see like a lot of those artists joining at the guest vocals. But of course, I think they would <coughs> perform. They'd be a perfect opening act for me, like to get the, mm-hmm. the yeah. crowd started. And, like, yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of... 
Like, no, but I think it's you're right. You said earlier it's HBO. It's an event. It's got to be entertainment. It's got to capture the audience. And I guess you got to have a strong start, make your way through the middle and the speeches, and then get to a strong finish and keep everybody awake. It's um, it's a bit like the Oscars, isn't it? You've got to try and keep it punchy, but like it's a show, you know. Absolutely, and that that that's what it is. At the end of the day, it's a yeah. it's a show that they're trying to put on. And um, yeah, I just I don't know. I'm just I was gonna say I think it's gonna be Bottom. He's the only choice. I, I can tell you the songs that they would play. I, I feel very Ooh. confident about tell the us. set lists that they would play. Um, <clears throat> and this would reflect their career, you know. Uh, and look, some artists do they generally get four or three or five? Is there a three, is there a KPI? Three, I've, I've seen four. four sometimes. Yeah, exactly. if it was four, they would they would definitely they would definitely play Need Your Time because the American audience. They'd play What You Need because of the American audience and because of those were those two seminal hits of those countries. Uh, they would play Don't Change because I think it's just one of their most revered songs and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Everclear play a cover of it, AFI do it, you know, spring scene. I mean, it's, it's the song of songs that, you know, such a yep. nostalgic lyric and it's 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 grown over time. Um, they would, uh, Don't Change, they would never tear us apart because, again, that surge in popularity and it's sung on every bloody American Idol and whatever show these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's four. Maybe, maybe the four. No, I, look, I think I, <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, and then I think they might also play like, Suicide Line. Maybe, you know, anyway. John, it's uh, just a whole concert for, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think what would be, be like incredible is you're cheating. Yeah, they'd, go the, they'd go to the deep cuts and, the, yeah. It'd yeah. be incredible if they started with what you need and then need you tonight and then like yeah. like and then just like kind of continue. They would yeah. do that. They would they, they would they would start with what you need. They would probably yeah. go into need you tonight. They would then go into never tear us apart and they yep. bring it home with don't change like That's they would exactly do exactly what I would imagine. That would that was that would be the way they would do it. And 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 again, um yeah, I think I think they would be it served the night well and it mm-hmm. you know it'd give the audience a you know a tag along. I mean you know, without digressing too much, it seems like a complicated event, booking tickets for families, the cost, the charges, all that sort of stuff. Um, I don't think anyone would probably welcome that. Um, um, but hopefully it happens sooner than later, you know. Maybe that's a great meeting point for all of us if we uh, uh, if we can get a chance to meet each other uh, live yeah, in person be in Cleveland. That would be pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah, now they're in L.A., New York. Cleveland every three years now. Are they I moving think, around now? Are they between New York and that? I think they were in New York a couple of years ago, were they? Or so they so they used to be New York and Cleveland, um, and, and then now they're the ceremony this year is going to be in LA. So now they're going to do every three years. So they're going to go. I think right. LA now, New York, Cleveland, and three year right. intervals. Um, I don't know. They're they're definitely going to happen at some point. I'm just guessing the next three to five years. They're I hope they're, so. They're That's too, great. Too if big. you just finally look at the contemporaries, the fact that your rhythmics have got in is sort of an odd one in terms of I think John would say this that that Eurythmics is a standalone band in America had fleeting. Oh, what, fleeting's not doing just. They had a bit more than fleeting, but they didn't have the depth of singles or album penetration. But I think they've had the Annie Lennox factor, the Dave Stewart production factor, yeah. and the it. friends in the industry factor. And they deserve it, but I but I think there's other these elements there. Yeah, agreed. Plus, I just love the earth. (laughs) I do too. I do feel like I do feel like if you take Sweet Dreams out of that catalog, um, they're a very great singles pop act. Mm -hmm. Is that 
earn them a spot in the Hall of Fame? I don't know about that. I don't I don't personally know. I think it's sweet dreams that kind of catapults them near the top because it's still so evergreen. And then I think it's what you and Hayden both have said many times. It's the relationships, it's the respect for Dave Stewart and Annie Lennox. And you're right, they both as individuals, they probably deserve to get in there. So yeah. And they got yeah. the most votes apparently. Like that's that's that kind of shocks me, but Good for them. Yeah. I love them. I'm not angry about it. Oh, no. I, I'm so happy for them. And they were, like, genuinely happy. So it's, like, mm-hmm. just uh, amazing. Okay. Well, thank you so much, John and Hayden, for coming on the show. It was an absolute pleasure talking to both of you. And, yeah, this was such a fun, engaging conversation. I hope people enjoy it, by the way. Can I give a little plug to our, our, our website? Well, absolutely. We're going to do. And you know what? After two, I actually don't even know the website, but if you plug in in excess, access all areas, it will take you to all the landing pages you need to find. Um, We uh, we are a critical and uh, complimentary and uh, sycophantic and outrageous and funny and lucid and uh, irreverent uh, podcast. Um, So even if you don't necessarily just like in excess. Even if you're a passive music fan, what I love about John's podcast is that I can listen to a person I know nothing about, but they produced uh, the keyboards on Sun 181, yes, and when Rick Mayne wasn't there, and, and I'm entranced. And as I said, I probably stolen a bit of John's ideas to try and make this a real deep dive into areas that you don't always have to be the biggest fan. And weirdly enough, John, you may have seen this too, and maybe some of your um, guests have come back to you and they've seen a, maybe a little spike in some sales or mm-hmm. fandom at concerts. You know, we're getting people downloading stuff and buying things and engaging with things and friends joining patrons. And it's great that we can have a little effect on the artists that we like, you know. Great. And I think the artists these days don't have many outlets to have deep dives on. So it's something that we enjoy on our podcast. And um, anytime you need... Uh, a chatty guy from down under to join in on one of your podcasts. I've got a chattier British girl who'll be even <laughs> chattier than me would be happy to come on and I love her and we'll awesome. bring her on maybe uh, next yeah. time, but happy to uh, uh, be involved in anything because uh, we love music. And, yeah. you know, I, I, for you two guys, what you guys do on your respective podcasts, like I, I, I now, Nick, I now have another deluge. How many episodes have you done in the last year? Uh, so this will be... I want to say 34, 35 we'll have for the year. Right. I'm going to deep dive on yours because I'm really interested to <laughs> good uh, stuff. start I love with it. the Duran Duran one that we got them uh, okay. as well. Yeah. We always say to our friends, start with the latest ones first, work backwards. <laughs> so, <laughs> start with me, man. Yeah, you start, you start with the most yeah. oh, yeah. uber yeah. talented John Lamoureux. I mean, yeah, come right. on. <laughs> Absolutely. Podcast. So just to clarify, um, Hayden, for our listeners, what is the name of your uh, website? Uh, yeah, the podcast find? is called In Excess, Access All Areas. Um, right. And it's on all the platforms, Spotify, um, uh, Apple, um, Intune Radio, well, every major sort of platform out there. And you go to our website, you know, there's a lot of fan interaction, engagement. We're happy to chat on Messenger and we have lots of competitions and we, we get lots of great science stuff we've got. Um, look, thankfully, we've got qu- quite close relationships with Tim Kirk and Andrew. Mm. You know, we can send things to their home. They'll sign things. They'll we auction things off. We we do giveaways. Um, we have quite a lot of interaction on things, um, so the collectors out there can have that part sort of sated. Um, and uh, we've been very very fortunate to have you know people related to the band you know come on and speak about their experiences that's, and things. That's too. what 
like I when I looked at your website, I was very intrigued by. I was like, oh, you have the interactions from the actual band, like family members. Yeah, and sometimes we're recording this. Yeah, yeah we, we've got uh, two to go. We've got John and Gary who have both agreed to come on. That's only happened the last couple of weeks. John uh, John's in Byron Bay, and he's a bit reclusive these days. He does a little bit of stuff uh, with a guy called Kieran Gribben who did some guest vocals for them towards the end. And Gary's in LA with his band and things like that. But um, one thing that's been quite good is the record company reached, uh, sorry, the label. Um, unfortunately, their manager passed away about a year ago, Chris Murphy, and um, a lady uh, called Sam Evans who worked with Chris for 30 years. She's reached out, out, out to us and given us some guidance about how we do things the right way and the wrong way and, and been supportive on various things. And we we actually helped do a joint initiative with the website when they had a movie thing come out last year. There was a, a short film come out with excess Music. It was a... It was a sort of uh, initiative where we launched it through the podcast and then we we liaised it through their website and then they advertised on the website. So we did a bit of a joint initiative with management and that was that was good. Um, but we like to be a bit of a standalone. We like to have uh, creative control most of the time um, and go with our own instincts uh, as we do. That's all excellent. I, I hope the listeners check out your uh, podcast. Thank you for uh, letting us know about that. John, where could they find your legendary podcast? <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> uh, it's called The Hustle. Um, I We have a lot of mutual friends, so I, I think at this point people have either decided they like it and they want to listen to it or they don't like it and they don't want to listen to it. But if you're new to it, look for The Hustle and go into the archives because chances are pretty good we've talked to somebody that will capture your attention. The, the amount of, I always say this every time I talk to John, but the amount of guests that he gets, it's insane. Like, like, like the legends that you get. So I'm jealous, but I'm also so excited for you. And like, Thank John, you. I, I, I love the, sorry, if I could ask you, I, I love the, we had youth on the other week because um, as you probably know, you know, with Crowded House, he, that was one of his first projects. And then he worked with Midnight Oil down here. And he wrote Sunshine on a Rainy Day that he gave coverage to, which is still one of my favorite. You sent me the link and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. Right, yeah. See, that was the hit in Australia, you know, not long after it was there. And I didn't ever associate with his ex-wife, you know. And I didn't quite know the history of the origins of the song. I'm so glad you asked him. And I was playing that song every day. Now I love the Zoe version better. And Mm -hmm. it's such a non, it's it's such a non, um, uh, 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 what's the, the band he was in again? Uh, killing joke. Killing joke. Yeah. It's such a non-killing yeah. joke song, yeah. you know. Uh, but he must have been a real happy, lovey way to write that. And it's a killer lyric, killer sentiment. And um, I've yeah. never heard that song in the states. I only know it because I lived From, in England briefly yes. in 1991, and it was a big hit over yeah. there. Otherwise, I yeah. would never know that song. But anyway. that's the nuggets that your show delivers on that I really, really, really enjoy. And. You know, I could go on for hours about your Ivor Davies one and Nice House and oh, the, um, Simple Minds and things. So he's a great guy, Ivor Davies. He's a real generous yes. interviewee, I think. Yeah, I liked yeah. him a lot. Yeah, cannot recommend John's podcast enough. It's, it's really Thanks, guys. among the ones Thanks. that I listen to all the time. Of course, you guys can follow me at Nick D. Bamback on Twitter. And, of course, you can follow the uh, podcast Twitter account, which is at Rock and Retropod. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We need reviews for people to help discover the show and the great content we, we produce just like this episode. Uh, thank you so much for our listeners, by the way, because this is the one-year anniversary of the podcast episode. So thank you guys for Congratulations, the Congratulations, Nick. Well done. Oh, thank you. Uh, just thank you for all the support, the emails, the 
uh, messages. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you, Hayden, for coming on the show. And we'll talk to you guys later.